Well, hey there, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. For those of you joining us for the first time, thank you for tuning in. I'm the host, Anthony Swindell, and I have a wonderful conversation for you today. I sat down to chat with one of my favorite professors, Mr. Tom Moritz, about a variety of topics, including Buddhism and addiction recovery. We talked about environmentalism. We talked about knowledge management, how we collect the data that we get, and what we do once we have it. Um, And we talked about a lot of other little things in between. I'm really glad to be sharing this with you today because as fun of a conversation as it was to have and it is to listen to, I think the importance of some of the topics that we touch on are really crucial for the time that we live in. We talk a lot about uh, the environment and and the changing times and and really going forward in this post-truth world that we live in um, and making sense and thoroughly applying the data that we are able to get. So I introduced Tom and his uh, bio at the beginning of our conversation, so I don't want to talk too much right now, but I will say that there are some links available in the show notes to this episode, as well as at a aflareforthecurious.com, where you can uh, also listen to other episodes. Um, I'm going to just jump right into this episode. I will check in with you on the other side of our conversation. I really hope everybody gets something good out of this, and I do encourage you to send me your feedback. I've received a lot of support already from people and uh, encouraging words, and I, I really, I really enjoy it. So please uh, send me an email at a flare for the curious at gmail.com or uh, like and comment anywhere you listen. All right, here's my conversation with Mr. Tom Moritz. You're listening to A Flair for the Curious. My name is Anthony Swindell. I'm your host, and today I'm sitting down with Tom Moritz. Thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast today, Tom. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read your bio so everybody knows who we're talking to. Uh, Tom Moritz is a scholar and knowledge manager. His recent work is focused on the problems of big data and data as evidence. This means consideration of all aspects of data as the primary resource for science and for evidence-based policy formation and decision-making. At the Getty Research Institute, he served as Chief of Knowledge Management and Associate Director for Administration. At the Getty Research Institute, he led successful efforts to develop a comprehensive digital strategy. And at the American Museum of Natural History, he was Director of Library Services and oversaw scientific publishing. Tom has worked in the public sector and the nonprofit private sector, has successfully won grants from the Mellon and Sloan Foundations and the U.S. National Science Foundation, as well as from private donors. In fall of 2005, he served as visiting associate professor at the Pratt Institute Graduate School of Library and Information Science. He has served as an advisor to the U.S. Office of Personnel Management on Big Data. He has worked worldwide as an advisor on knowledge management and led in the formation of the Biodiversity Heritage Library and the UNEP-based Conservation Commons, which work included release of the first world database on protected areas, and serves on numerous advisory bodies and is author of many publications and presentations. And Tom, you're currently serving on the Death Valley Natural History Association. That's right. On the board? Yeah, I've been on the board of the Death Valley Natural History Association. I did eight years and then was off and then got reelected to the board last year. So, uh, and they're primarily focused on supporting Death Valley National Park out in eastern California. Yeah. Great. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of conservation work, just keeping the lands 
Well, they, protected? They, they're actually a primary support for the National Park. They actually run the Interpretive Center. I should say we actually run the Interpretive Center. And uh, we also do other projects. So we, interestingly, we're responsible also for the Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge, which is across the, across the state line in Nevada. Oh, wow. And it also happens to be where the, the uh, de- Devil's Hole pupfish is holding its last stand. Yes, <laughs> yes. So uh, I know you from this, uh, going to school here at University of the West as my professor, and in the environmental leadership class I took with you, right. uh, we talked a little bit about that, and we got For to sure. see some, some footage and some data on, mm-hmm. on that, that right. little critter. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing animal. Uh, very few people even know that there are fish in the desert. And the Devil's Hole pupfish is a remnant, probably. It's a little survivor of the time when the valley is out in eastern U.S. and uh, eastern uh, California and western Nevada were actually lakes. Those Death Valley, Panamint Valley uh, were large lake systems. And, of course, there were fish there. But Mm -hmm. as those lakes dried up, only little remnants of the original fauna that were in those lakes have survived. It's incredible. So, yeah, it's really and and Devil's Hole is a just a very small opening in the earth out in uh, western Nevada, and uh, there are only a few hundred pupfish that live out there. Yeah, and so I took that class with you about a year ago, and uh, we were talking about how they were doing some work to breed some of these uh, critters in a uh, right. replicated environment. They've created, they've got some, some local funding actually from the state of Nevada and from f- local federal sources to build a facility where they've actually been able to replicate the devil's hole environment in an artificial environment. And then they've been meeting with some success actually in raising uh, these pupfish in that environment. For example, when a, a large earthquake happened, like recently happened in Ridgefield, you get essentially tidal waves in that little uh, opening where these fish live. So far, they've survived, and they seem to have survived it for for millennia because there have, of course, been earthquakes all along. But nevertheless, uh, it's nice to have a backup supply in the event that uh, we should ever actually lose Devil's Hole by seismic activity, for example, yeah. or, or other human interventions. We don't know that you know how that might happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible process. Yeah. Really, it is. Really <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. miraculous little fish. I mean, I've seen them. I've gone out there many different times. And there are other desert fish that live in other bodies of water. They're related to the pupfish, uh, but they're not the same species, same genus and species. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm curious how you got to, to where you are today. I, I know you're, um, you are graduating 1964 class of San Gabriel High School, so you're that's uh, right. That's right. A, a local native to the right. area. That's but right. I understand uh, you mentioned, when, and you were a toddler, you went back and forth between China? Is that I lived in China when I was a year old. My father spent uh, about 10 years working in China. He originally was working with the YMCA, and then he was working with an organization called United China Relief. So in 1948... Uh, he took my, my my then entire family, my mother, my older sister, and I out to uh, Beijing. We lived in Beijing for a year. We were there through December of 1948. My mother says she could hear the gunfire on the outskirts of the city as the People's Liberation Army, the Communist Party, was moving into Beijing. And at the same time, the Guomindang and the Chinese Nationalist Forces were leaving and eventually moving out to Taiwan. 
So that's somewhere in my psyche. Yeah, are those memories? But I did grow up with Chinese, a lot of Chinese culture, because my parents had many books and artworks and other things from that experience experience in China. Yeah, yeah. and were you connected to um, the Chinese culture here in the San Gabriel Valley growing up? Well, you know, there wasn't any <laughs> when I was growing up here. That was more, I guess, in the '80s. We had that's a big right. increase in, exactly in population right. coming over um, yeah. from from China that's and exactly Vietnam right. and whatnot. Okay. Yeah. No, when I grew up here, I was at San Gabriel. As you said, I was in San Gabriel High School from 1960 to 64, and the only large minority population was Chicano. Uh, we probably had four or five hundred uh, Mexican American students. Uh, very few, uh, a few Asians, not not many. I played football with a couple of guys that were Japanese American, and uh, very. I, I don't. I think we might have had one or two black people, but at that time. And then, yeah, as you said, the, the influx of Asian people has occurred very much since then. So it's it's a, when I first came back after being away from this area for a long time, I didn't recognize the area. Mm-hmm. Even my high school, they had yeah. large signs up in Chinese all over the, and Vietnamese around the high school. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I grew up from age 8 to 18 here in Alhambra, the crosstown rival uh, Alhambra right. High School. Yeah, right. yeah, sure. yeah. uh, so I had a, a strong influence of uh, Chinese and Vietnamese mm-hmm. culture in my school. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, sure. I was curious. I'm wondering uh, if your parents' endeavors and travels... Uh, and cultural exploration affected, do you think it affected your open-mindedness? Because I know when people travel and learn about other cultures, they tend to be more receptive towards differences and mm-hmm. understanding. And, and my experience, you're a very open person, and I'm just wondering if well, you're up for all, thank you helped. for that. <laughs> I, I hope that's true. Uh, my parents were they're both very interesting. They were, uh, I'm not sure, Anthony, if you, how much you may be aware of this, but in the 1930s in the United States, there was a very large socialist movement. The communists and socialists were very active, as, as, and a very large union movement. There was also a very large movement of Christian leftists. And my father and mother, my father was involved with the YMCA as a student, a college student. My mother was at UCLA and involved with the YWCA. And they were both, uh, at that time, both organizations were quite progressive, particularly at the student level. And uh, my mother tells me the story, or told me the story, she's gone now, told me the story of being at UCLA in the 1930s, and they decided to integrate the YWCA housing at UCLA and the YWCA itself. And so young black women were coming there, and the local American Legion came after them, said, we're not going to allow that, we're going to come in and threaten your meeting. And so they, wow. my, mother, my mother's story was they got the UCLA football team to come and act as bodyguards for their meetings. Amazing. The American Legion didn't show up, apparently. <laughs> so that's in the era, perhaps in the era of mythology, but I suppose we could do some archival work and find out. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure she, she knew what she was talking about. She, By the way, she also, uh, when under FDR's order, uh, Japanese Americans were interned in 1941. I think it was, was it December of 41? I think it was pretty quickly after Pearl Harbor. Um, Many young women, particularly from the YWCA at UCLA, were shipped up to Manzanar, to the internment, the concentration camp at Manzanar. Mm-hmm. And my mother said that my grandmother from South Pasadena made box lunches to give people on the trains when they were being shipped out. And that my mother herself went up to Manzanar uh, several times to make visits to 
people that she knew who were being held there in that concentration camp. That's incredible. Yeah. So your answer, and, and both my mother and father were involved with Quakers. They went to Quaker meetings in the 30s and 40s, which has always been. The Quakers, as you may know, are a peace church. Yes. And they were both involved with meditation and with uh, the the ethics of Quakerism. So. Wow. Yeah. So you definitely had a yeah yeah I had, a, I had that going on upbringing. in my background for sure. Yeah. That's incredible. That yeah. sounds like a wonderful way to grow up. So then uh, you've been doing meditation since you were younger, or was it just in your awareness? Very long time. I, I started on my own. Started meditating with the Quakers in 1966 in Washington D.C. So there's the old anyone who knows D.C. Uh, the, the District of Columbia proper probably knows about the old Quaker meeting house on Florida Florida Avenue in the northwest part of Washington. It's an old stone building. I think it's probably 200 years old. Been there a very long time. Uh, they had blood thrown on their, uh, on their doorsteps back in the, during the Second World War because the Quakers are pacifists, and mm-hmm. many people accuse them of being uh, unfa- you know, uh, traitorous, un- treacherous to the, gov- the government. And that's been happening for a long time. But that's where I started meditating, as I started going to Sunday morning meetings at that. And so, uh, what kind of meditation were they doing? Well, then? the Quakers do it's it, you know the Quaker services such as they are, are called un, they're called unprogrammed. Mm-hmm. Basically, what happens is that you go in, you have a starting time, everyone sits quietly, and whenever anyone has moved to speak, they stand up and and speak. Yes. And so uh, it's not exactly like a Buddhist meditation practice, but in many ways it's very similar. So that's where I got my start. I started doing that meditation at least on a weekly basis. Uh, And then very soon after that, I got... My father died suddenly in 1968, in the end of March 1968. I was going to school in Washington, D.C. by that point. And uh, my father died, and then Martin Luther King was killed one week later. And the whole city of Washington went up in smoke. Wow. It was a very, 68 was a very, very bad year for our country, for many of us worldwide, I would suppose. And, um, you know, I would say that my Christian belief, such as it was, was challenged by that experience, both of my father, loss of my father, and also by the sort of trauma that many of us were. I, I stood up on a building. On the Thursday night that Martin Luther King was killed, I was standing on top of a building in, in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Actually, Bill Clinton was there, too, by the way. He and I were classmates at Georgetown. We weren't good friends, but we, but we were actually happened to be, both be up. I remember this distinctly. And we were looking out to the east across the city, and there was the national capital with the lights on, but then flames were jumping up against the sky from 14th Street, and I think 6th Street was the other street that were, there was massive burning going on. And uh, that image is just deeply imprinted in my mind. Uh, in many ways, it shook so many fundamental uh, sources of trust and belief that I had. And then that, that year went on to be even worse. So we had the Chicago Convention, and Richard Nixon was elected president. Mm-hmm. We were in the midst of the Vietnam War, and we, many of us were hoping that the war would end. We were also, by the way, in the midst of the Civil Rights Movement. And I had gone down and done voter registration in Mississippi, 1967. So it was a very difficult, very difficult period. The point of my mentioning all of that, though, is to say that uh, I had been studying Buddhism a little bit in an academic way in one of my classes at Georgetown. And it suddenly began to make sense to me. This was in 1968, so it's more than 50 years ago. But it began to make sense to me. 
And what, what is it? Buddhism? Yeah. Uh, I couldn't account for, uh, you know, the reality. When my father died, for example, one of the, one of the ways Christian ministers, for example, would try and comfort to say, well, God in his mysterious ways, we don't understand why these things happen, but they happen, you know, and that wasn't satisfying to me. It didn't make sense to me that that would be true. It didn't feel real to my experience. And so Buddhism, at least as I understood, as little as I understood it at that time, seemed to offer something more like an explanation that I could understand. Mm -hmm. Part of which is just to say the reality of the world is that, you know, in Buddhism we say all human beings, if they live long enough, will be are vulnerable to old age, sickness, and death. And it's not, that's not uh, nihilistic or fatalistic. It's simply a, a, a coming to terms with the reality of the world and say, this is the way the world is. Yeah, that's, I think, a big part of what drew me towards Buddhism. It's a pragmatic approach. I think so, yeah. You know, there are many, many traditions, and some of them can be more esoteric or more cultural or ritualistic, but at its, right. at its core, it tends to fall back on a very pragmatic approach to approaching life and the That's circumstances right. that that it encompasses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you said you you were at Georgetown. You also studied at UCLA and Columbia University in, in New York. Uh, new college in the then in <laughs> new school. New school down <laughs> in the south end of, of Manhattan Island. Yeah, amazing. I, it took me eight years to get my undergraduate degree, and I sort of migrated around. At the time, I was doing my best not to get uh, caught up in um, in the Vietnam War. I had. I actually was one A. I don't know if you actually. You guys may not know that, but one A meant I was. I was immediately susceptible to draft. Yep. And I was one A for about eighteen months, and actually had a, what's called a pre-induction physical down in uh, New Jersey. Uh, but I had made my mind up uh, that I was not going to. Uh, I was not going to leave the country, and I'd also decided I was not going to refuse induction because I felt it was my duty as a citizen to accept my responsibility to be inducted. But I did tell the Army and people that were, I was talking to that I would not accept orders to Vietnam. So that was where things... So I was never forced to make that determination, but I did tell Army intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> so, Such a hard line to skirt. That's Well, I, it was a difficult... A, I mean, not, we all came up with different solutions. You know, mm -hmm. many people in my, in my age class, my cohort, my age class came up with different solutions, and people came up with different ways of responding. But that was the way I came up. I admire that you're, you know, well, you're you're willing to do your duty as a citizen, but you're going to stand your ground for what you believe in well, simultaneously. Well, that was sort of what it came down to. Yeah, I mean, but you know, I, I appreciate I'm just, that. I'm all just very grateful that I didn't have to to uh, actually do that because I would have wound up in the brig or the depending on where I was, or yeah. stockade, depending on which service I was in. So, yeah, and that wouldn't have really been helpful for <laughs> anybody. They weren't I very suppose. kind to the people that went through that. You know, mm -hmm. many, many people did go through that. Yes. You know, so, yeah. 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 Um, so while you studied uh, at these various schools, you studied literature and English and French and ethics, mm -hmm. labor history. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and new, internet New school. That's new where school. I did that. Yeah. Ah, ah, nice. An old-time radical school. So That's okay. incredible. Incredible. Um, and then also I have down here, you did international affairs and library science. Yeah. Um, so I... I'm hearing, you know, you had a, a rich um, political, uh, mm -hmm. cultural upbringing and background. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, it's, that clearly informed your adult life. And so, mm -hmm. like, from your studies and your experiences in the, in the 60s and early 70s, how did you 
get into knowledge management and yeah. teaching here at University of the West. That's, that's a good question. Yeah, how did you get from, from, sure. there, from there to here? Sure, yeah. Well, I can tell you briefly, I was being tracked to be a lawyer or a diplomat. That was what I was being tracked to do, huh. which is how I wound up at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Um, Despite my best efforts, I did very well academically. <laughs> uh, eventually, I mean, my my academic record's a little like electrocardiogram, but yeah, I did very well um, and was uh, accepted at both Berkeley and Georgetown. I started out, by the way, at Santa Barbara, at UC Santa Barbara. Oh, okay, and then uh, after two years there, was accepted at both Berkeley and Georgetown, and made the decision to go to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. It's a very small school. I don't know what it is now, but it used to be about 150 people. Very small. And had a very high percentage. This was still sending more people into the State Department than any place else in the in the world. Uh, so I, I was being tracked in that direction. But at the same time, as I said, I was getting more and more engaged with civil rights, with the anti-war movement. And when I say engaged, I mean we were doing very simple things. Like we had a a peace vigil once a week for an hour at Georgetown, where a group of us, a Jesuit, uh, one of the Jesuit faculty. And a few of us students would stand out with signs simply uh, commemorating all the people that were dying in the Vietnam War. And there were students there. They, I remember they threw a condom full of water on top of us. We were just, we, and we were silent. We were not, we weren't uh, agitating. We weren't making. We were simply trying to mem- to memorialize or bring to mind the the people that were dying every on all sides in Vietnam. Did you only get that negative feedback? Was anybody well, appreciative we, that you were brought, out there? Well, originally, not very many. I mean, that was my general sense. I mean, there was a small group of us that did it. And um, we that same, more or less, that small group, we had a community action program at Georgetown. And the, one of the Jesuit advisors took a group of us down to Mississippi, and we did voter registration in Sunflower County with Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, so she was one of the very well-known leaders in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. So we went down there and did that, and it was gradually a pro- The whole country was uh, going through trans- transition at that point. The black communities were very often in open rebellion. Um, there were riots, fires, gunfire. National Guard troops were being sent into American cities. Uh, and eventually, so things through the 60s, things seemed to just get worse and worse. And we had an administration, particularly once Richard Nixon was elected, well, actually, when Lyndon Johnson was there, too, who simply seemed not to be able to respond to the public will. And the thing that I mentioned already is that at that time, many of us were being drafted. The, the, the lesson that they seem to have learned so that they can fight their discretionary wars now in Iraq or Vietnam, I'm sorry, or Afghanistan, uh, wherever else we're fighting, uh, has been... Use volunteer troops. Don't use draftees. And make the economic conditions so bad that people are That's eager right. to volunteer exactly. to get any, any help right. that they can get. If people are looking for promotional tracks mm-hmm. or a track out of the communities that they're in, uh, the Army, the Armed Forces provide a way to do that. So, yeah. yeah. And then so many of the island nations that are American territories have huge percentages of people signing up. And, That's yeah, right. It's That's right. Yeah. Tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how did you get into knowledge management? Well, I, yeah, I started to go there. Uh, basically, I was being tracked to be a lawyer or a diplomat, but I, pretty soon I'd become persona non grata. 
<laughs> it was pretty clear yeah. by my political positions that I wasn't going to be a good diplomat. <laughs> and I began, I actually ended up taking the law, law boards at one point, and I did pretty well. I used to do, I used to test pretty well on a lot of things, but, but somehow at that time, about 1972, I got a job shelving books in Washington, D.C. <laughs> at the Department of the Interior Library. And my mother was also interested in libraries at that time. And uh, my supervisor, who was a li- the chief librarian there, the National Library of the Department of the Interior, said, I think you should go to library school. So I went home to New York at Christmas time. Pratt was willing to accept me on very short notice. I gave him my resumes and my, you know, my, my credentials, including my test scores and so forth. And they accepted me for January in December. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So I started a one-year program to get a master's of library science at Pratt. Oh, wow. And uh, from a Buddhist standpoint, I think it was a right livelihood decision. Yes. I began to really think about what my day-to-day life as a lawyer or a diplomat might have been like, even if I tried to do that. And librarianship seemed to me to be one of the most harmless professions I could, <laughs> I could follow. Yeah. And, so, and, and I was right, I think, actually. I still believe I was right. It was one of those... It was a, you know, some sort of grace entered my life in the sense that I was able to see that even at that point in my life when I was pretty confused mm. and pretty distraught. It's still because of my father's death. But, but nevertheless, I got into that program. And that, so that led from one, uh, from graduate school to uh, I returned to the Department of the Interior, worked there under temporary orders. I did some work at the National Academy of Sciences. And then we moved to, my then wife and I moved out to Seattle. And I uh, eventually got into graduate school there in international affairs, Chinese regional studies, and did three, three and a half years of graduate work at the University of Washington. In Chinese regional studies? Chinese regional studies, yeah. Chinese language, literature, uh, anthropology, history, art history. Wow. Philosophy, all of that. Yeah, it's a good school. Are you fluent in Mandarin? No, no, no. Well, I mean, I studied it for three years, but that was, remember, 40 years ago. Yeah. I've actually, since we've been at U.S., I've thought about kind of resurrecting my Chinese. Yeah. I have a little bit still, you know, probably because I grew up with it when I, you know, even when I lived in China, I was very little, but they said it was my first language. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just took one semester of it here, but even having that little bit of access, I feel, uh, you know, it's, it's allowed for just some funny moments sometimes, or I can recognize a little bit of characters uh, around town and having grown up here and, and been immersed in Chinese culture to take that one semester offered me a little bit different insight, <laughs> sure. and I felt more connected to the community that I yeah. grew up in yeah. just by taking that one class. It's pretty well, speaking, amazing what language Speaking can it do. is possible, but you know, reading it is a very... One of my professors, yeah. who is a, I, I have a lot of affection for still, was a, I, I'd walk into his office and he would be sitting there, and this was a, he was already at the grad, you know, teaching graduate school, when he'd be sitting there with his flashcards his flash just rehearsing, because there's so little in our you know, Euro culture mm-hmm. that reinforces Chinese, particularly reading. Mm-hmm. And depending whose numbers you use, there may be as many as 80,000 characters in the Chinese uh, written script. Yeah, I hear you only need to know like 5,000 or so to read a newspaper. Well, uh, <laughs> actually, the number was... Uh, 3,000 or so. started at 2,700 was the number that was actually used. They began a newspaper literacy program. Uh-huh. Actually, the YMCA in China began that in the 1920s, 1930s. They also began physical education, <laughs> but the notion of Chinese literacy, uh, newspaper literacy, was what was really uh, led 2700. to the twenty-seven hundred number. Yeah, yeah, and, and that that was obviously an effort to make uh, what had been a very exclusive form of education only for very elite groups 
available to everyday people. Mm-hmm. So fascinating. Yeah, really. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay, so that led you to uh, knowledge management. So before we dig yeah. into your work as a, a knowledge management specialist, mm-hmm. let's, I guess, say what is knowledge management? Mm-hmm. Can we define that? Well, sure. I, I, I think it's interesting. I, as a matter of fact, I was just lecturing to uh, the class that you took. I'm teaching it again this semester. <laughs> and we are looking at what's often called the knowledge pyramid. Mm-hmm. And it starts out at the very base with simply the reality as we apprehend it, which is the whole universe, basically. And... Above that, there's a, a layer and this pyramid, if you, we can visualize it, it's hard on the radio, but there's a, or on a, a podcast, but there's a, there's a layer that basically has to do with data that's selected or measured by human beings. So that's a subset of, the, of reality. And then on that basis, we make hypotheses, theories, I would say reasonable associations of data that lead us to try and explain or account for phenomena that we see in the world, all right? And then when we get consensus from a significant group of qualified people that, that those speculations, those theories, hypotheses, can be confirmed and, and considered to be knowledge that is actionable, some sort of actionable truth about the real world. So the difference between information is, and knowledge is information is the raw data and the knowledge is the, right. the applied... That's right. Associations, I would say, associations of raw data. And raw data becomes evidence when it is being selected and focused on particular problems. So in other words, when we want to address a problem, you know, the one I, I think you, you, you have been through in my class and I'm just about to start with this next week is the story of cholera. Well, then we follow that with the story of Ebola and AIDS. And in each of these cases, we were confronted with crises that we couldn't, with our current levels of knowledge and understanding, really explain at all. And we, as often happens when we were faced with these situations, human beings came up with contending theories about how, for example, in the case of cholera, there was a very pre- prevalent belief that it was caused by bad air by vapors. There was what was called the miasmatic theory of cholera. And they were convinced that that was what it was doing. And even the London Board of Health, even when presented with very conclusive evidence, refused to accept that evidence. They were so convinced that they understood how cholera was communicated. And in fact, uh, we now know that it's waterborne and it's a bacterial infection. And we actually had the pieces to understand that very in very short order. Cholera broke out in, in England, I think, in 1832. And then we began to see a series of these cholera epidemics that they would recur. And throughout the first 20 or 30 years, the British were unable to accept, the authorities were unable to accept that there was clear evidence that cholera was waterborne. So I wonder, what is the psychological factor that gets somebody who has clear evidence of something that goes against their beliefs, what is the psychological factor that allows them to shift into accepting the evidence that's presented in front of well, them? Well, that's the, that's the big question. <laughs> in fact, it's the cru- crucial question we're facing right now on this planet. Exactly. With respect <laughs> to climate change. Uh, yeah. It's a huge issue. And, and so why is it that our beliefs are so inert? That is, you know, I think it was Newton said, inertia is the tendency of a body in motion to stay in motion or a body at rest to stay at rest. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm using it in that latter uh, respect. (laughs) Our ideas are very, very fixed. Human beings can be very, very intransigent. Once we think we have an understanding 
of any phenomena, we have, find it very, very difficult to release that prior understanding and accept any new theory. There have been one of the examples, actually, I've just finished talking about this in class today, is that the, it took 350 years for the Vatican to accept the Galilean theory that the, the Earth was not the center of the universe, that the Earth rotated around the sun. Galileo proposed that 350 years ago. Oh, now 380 years ago. And it wasn't until about 1994 that the, the Vatican actually accepted that Galileo was right. So there was an intransigence, an inability to simply... And so what you had in that case were layers of resistance. I mean, the, yeah. the individual, the question of why, whether an individual... I mean, there, in fact, I'm quite sure there were Catholics, including people at the Vatican, when Galileo was alive, that could accept the plausibility of what he was saying. Do you think it's an issue of authority? Because like with climate change, those at the top who are denying it are the ones who actually understand the implications of what would have to change once everybody acknowledges and accepts climate change. So at the top, the deniers are, are doing so so that the uneducated will support them. You may be giving them too much credit. They may not have that depth of understanding. Uh, they certainly understand. Like the super rich and elite that are running things? They're being asked that they need to make changes, but they may not actually understand. They, they may not consciously know how much they are in denial about the reality of the world. Hmm. That's my peer. My, I'll tell you something. You know, um, back at the time we were fighting both the civil rights in the civil rights movement in the '60s and the anti-war movement. I was 20, 20 something years old. My first civil rights march was a sympathy march for Selma in 1966. I think that's when I first took a public action. That I remember my friends laughing at me, but. At that age, I don't think I comprehended how much resistance we were facing, how powerful these forces of inertia are. When we're talking about wealth, for example, the entrenched wealth of the world, we often talk about the 1%, and there's a tiny fragment. The data I've seen recently, I think we have, we have three people who have as much wealth as the entire lower 50% of the population. <laughs> yeah. that we... I think that we don't understand just how powerful those people are and how desperate they are to protect their wealth. And mm -hmm. the same thing was true during the Vietnam era, although at that era there was a, a paradigm of the Cold War that was being used very much to defend everything. Mm -hmm. Like Vietnam was actually a discretionary war. To a certain degree, Korea was as well. But certainly Vietnam was a discretionary war. I would juxtapose that to the Second World War. World War I, perhaps, but certainly World War, you know, the, the Vietnam War was clearly a, a choice. We made a choice to go into that war and to engage. We were not, no matter what they were saying at the time, we were not facing any imminent threat. Yeah. They were not coming across the Canadian border or across the Mexican border to attack us. And that's still a, a, a kind of a threat that's being raised by our leaders. But the reason they were, we were fighting that war was because they were feeling threatened. Uh, they were fighting a, a, an action to resist any challenges to the financial structure that was, prev was prevalent and is, pre in fact, it's even more prevalent, I'm afraid to say, now than it was then. Mm. You know, so a lot of power. A lot of power, yeah. And I imagine there's only been more networking since then amongst the elite. It's, yeah. it's really entrenched. Um, so... 
Going back to the knowledge management, yeah, sure. uh, in trying to just do a little bit of research about what that is before mm-hmm. talking with you, mm-hmm. um, most of the applications that I found were people talking about their their personal knowledge management of knowledge managing their emails and whatnot. Uh, and then most of the content was related to business and pe- and how sure. to maximize efficiency and all the, all the, you know, capitalistic keywords of using this to, to be more efficient and more profitable, uh, managing your data within your business. Sure. So, uh, I know that those aren't necessarily your goals in life. So I'm, I'm curious what your application of, of knowledge sure. management has been yeah. and how it can be utilized. Cause it sounds like you were always talking about interpreting the data. So it's used, uh, appropriately in scientific means or, uh, through social justice or conservation. So, uh, what has been your application right. and, and how, how, how does that differ than other ways that it's used? Well, I think, I mean, you're right. Uh, when knowledge management is talked about today, it's very often thought of as a method that can be used for greater profit mm-hmm. in many corporate, for-profit corporate settings. That's certainly true. And, in fact, many corporations still do a terrible job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's surprising. They're, they are doing things. I, I once, at an at a international conference, once met a fellow working for the Ford Foundation. No, I'm sorry, not the Ford Foundation. The Ford Corporation in mm-hmm. Detroit, whose job was simply to make digital copies of every resume that was sent to Ford. Whoa. And they were trying to build a giant database. Uh, in other words, essentially, a pool uh, potential candidates that they could analyze and then use efficiently. I don't know how far Ford actually got with that effort, but they, you know they they've tried. Um, I was at a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences, uh, probably I don't know ten years ago or fifteen years ago, and uh, one of the representatives of the pharmaceutical industry was there and was talking about a closed database of scientific papers. Of over my recollection now is that it was over two hundred thousand scientific papers that they had locked down and were not making publicly available because they considered it to be a corporate asset. Oh wow! Yeah, and if you think about it, if you I think, think that's about, one way to not manage knowledge. Is to well, if you think about <laughs> pharmaceuticals, so I mean, yeah. pharmaceuticals are set up to presumably aid the process of human health mm-hmm. under some potentially some conditions of urgency. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are, in other words, people are dying when they don't get the medicine they need. Yeah. Simple form of the problem. Yeah. And yet, under the for-profit motive, these companies are limiting access to life-saving pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. It's worse than that, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you, as you may remember, there are cases of companies... Create not only creating pharmaceuticals, but also creating, for example, pesticides or herbicides that are create that have been demonstrated to cause cancer. Mm-hmm. And the same company that manufactures these herbicides or pesticides is also manufacturing carcin- anti carcinogenic drugs to treat the cancers that they're causing. Yeah, it's a, it's a sociopathic <laughs> business model, and nothing, yeah, right. nothing short right, of right. It. And to come back to so to come back to your question, I mean your original question about knowledge management. Knowledge management is really about asking ourselves, how can we most effectively and most efficiently develop and apply the knowledge that we have? And there are many, many people have written in this area, but it's been speculated, for example, that most people who reach at a professional level and maybe their seniority, they're maybe um, sharing 5 or 10% of what they know. It's just a, a rough estimate. It would be very difficult, of course, to measure that. 
But nevertheless, one of the goals of knowledge management would be to optimize the degree to which people can share the knowledge that they actually have as a result of long academic study and long professional experience. And under conditions of urgency, again, which I, I would consider all, all healthcare situations essentially to be urgent. Yeah. But by the way, climate change is also urgent. Yes. We can't afford not to optimize our use of knowledge. It's the ultimate health concern. <laughs> That's right. It, it is. And I'll, I mean, implied in what you just said is the fact that, you know, knowledge and health, I mean, health and the environment are not separate entities. Yeah. There's this weird dichotomy, particularly in American culture, where we give the National Institute of Health $39 billion. That's their NIH budget for 2019. And the NSF is getting $8 billion. NSF, in theory... Which, and by the way, I've worked with them in the past. I actually worked with both, but mostly with the NSF. The NSF is covering all sciences, wow. all forms of life, everything. And the NIH, to a certain degree, is doing that, where microbiology is involved. But, but there's still a huge disproportion in how we're investing our public funds, and that's anthropocentric. That's just human-centered. Yeah. And so that's, that's part of the crisis that we face. But the other problem is that we're just inept. Mm-hmm. Like for you take a person like myself uh, or, or any any of my peers who have worked professionally for many years, I, I'd like to think I have a lot of knowledge and experience that could be appro- appropriately applied in many different settings. I think so. And I've been given many opportunities to do that. I mean, I, I'm very grateful for that. But people reaching my age, why are we not finding ways much more systematically and much more skillfully to transfer, to do what's essentially called knowledge transfer? from older, more senior people. And it, it doesn't, it, it's not about more my, my wanting salary. I really would like to be able to share much more effectively and efficiently my experience and do it in a way that, that isn't repressive. I mean, younger people growing up don't want old people telling them what to do. And I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I simply would like to offer the possibility that there may be insights and there may be ways to do that. And to a certain degree, our social media does permit that, but it's not in any way systematic enough. Yeah. I can give you a very, actually a very clear example. When I was at the Getty, um, I, was in, I was at the Getty Research Institute and we managed the Getty Scholars Program. We had an amazing array of scholars come through there. Hmm. Susan Sontag was there. Oh, wow. Many, many different people. A guy, a guy, a local guy I like a lot named Mike Davis was a fellow. And, and we've had many, many really wonderful people come through there. They would come and spend six months or eight months at the Getty, living in residence there, wow. participating in seminars. And when I was there, I, su- I suggested that we turn the Getty Institute into a knowledge capture environment, that we equip every conference room with recording devices, not unlike what you and I are working with right here. Nothing quite as nice as what you've got, perhaps. (laughs) But nevertheless, with the ability, for example, if I was, let's just say, Anthony is a scholar or Tom's a scholar, we're sitting down and we start a conversation. And we decide, this is getting interesting. Bump, we hit a button, state, date, time, and we simply record it. Yeah. We simply record it. And we create archives of knowledge exchanges at a very informal level. Mm -hmm. And we develop and apply software that could analyze, classify, make available to future uh, future generations that conversation. Well, how was that received when you suggested it? Very few people understood what I was talking about. I think uh, I believe I believe very few people. I mean, the Getty has the resources to do it. They could have. 
Uh-huh. We did other things. For example, I'll give you another example. We have national archives, right? Everything. Well, yeah, the national archives. But, but again, that, that's very. That's pretty much like records management. Uh-huh. In other words, when I finish doing what I'm doing at the NSF, I box things up and send them over. And the archives may occasionally do what's called oral history. Mm-hmm. But this is taking things to another level. Yeah. And, and uh, I'll tell you, I wanted to give you one other example of something we did there. One of a, a local California artist um, gave his, basically his entire archives. He basically, that's being generous. He loaded up a dump, not a dumpster, but one of those uh, pods, uh-huh. you know, moving pods yeah. with everything. And he gave it to us. We took it. But what, what I suggest and what we actually did with the help of other, other friends at, at the Getty is we decided to have him go through his own archives and talk about it. Oh, and wow. we recorded him. We had an overhead camera and we had microphones and we recorded him talking about his own archive. Incredible. Now imagine uh, here, imagine this. Imagine that you had Albert Einstein. Yeah. Doing or or take any pick anybody yeah. any 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 of uh, any of our so many. much more valuable to yeah. have and all then of you that and then you have the, the ability to actually see him you can see him looking at a document for example this guy drove a map I can remember he drove a, drew a map of Topanga Canyon where I used to live and talked about back in the fifties and sixties where the artists all lived in this area wow. and he talked about the communications literally day to day between these artists and how people we went to parties here and we did that there so. It's a that's that's in my mind a very good example of how this could work. Mm-hmm. If and so let's ju- let's jump ahead to an entirely different environment. Let's let's talk about the U.S. EPA, the Environmental Protection sure. Agency. We have I have a good friend who's been a, uh, a lawyer at the EPA for many years. I have a great deal of confidence in him and trust in him, and I trust. Similarly, he has huge amount of experience. So here's the question. He's, uh, he, he won't be retiring for a while, but pretty soon. The question becomes, what is the best possible way of capturing the knowledge that he walks around with up here in his cranium? Uh, on a, other than simply preserving his emails, which are good, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. emails are better than because emails are often much more colloquial, much more discursive yeah. than just a formal report or memorandum but still how how could we best possibly capture that information and that knowledge and make it available in a way that's useful and efficient that's the fun this goes back to your original question what does knowledge management mean in its best sense Mm -hmm. and under conditions of urgency which we're absolutely under right now with respect to climate change loss of biodiversity uh take your pick yeah you know i think there's an imperative that we need we have to be doing and finding these kinds of solutions. And I'm sure there may, I mean, I hope that there are people out there who have been thinking along these same lines and are trying to discover these. But I'm, I don't know that there are, but I hope that there are. Yeah, so. yeah I, I love that. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, yeah it makes me think, like, uh, the other day, I, somebody, I was in a class, they asked, uh, yeah. if you could have dinner with anybody, who would it be, right? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much more that you get from a conversation with somebody that's teasing, right. teasing it out than uh, the report or, or, so, or in a good class as well by the way yeah yeah, yeah. any any kind of open yeah. dialogue yeah. is really important so yeah to speak to what you just said um that one of the reasons i have you here is because uh, i yes i enjoyed your class but you're you're a community elder and i i value and appreciate yeah, your wisdom and i you know i'm happy to Thank you to, to lend this <laughs> ah sure sure yeah i'm happy to lend this platform to your voice because mm-hmm. i think it is important to preserve your knowledge and uh, promote it and ha- have it out there and uh to 
to that continued point, uh, you you said, you know, you think you should uh, knowledge should be passed down generationally, but obviously young people don't want it imposed on them. Right. And in this world of sound bites that we're in, where everybody wants, right. you know, now they they tell you how long it takes to read the article at the top of the article, right? Three minutes, right. five minutes, That's ten right. minutes, thirty minute read, and that doesn't get any clicks. So. What, that's kind of uh, what I think a lot of people enjoy about podcasting. It's an informal, this is mm-hmm. a very conversational, it's non-threatening because you're not forced to listen to it. It's, I, I agree, it's, very op- much agree. it's optional yeah. that's right. and it's long format. You yeah. know, uh, sometimes people try to keep it tight and go, you know, half hour, hour, or there's like uh, updates, the weekly news and you can get like little two minute, five minute podcasts. Sure. But some of them, you know, th- uh, this show I've done two, three hour long episodes and, mm-hmm. and it's long format. And I think that's... Something people are really enjoying going back to that long format, conversational, mm-hmm. teasing things out. You can go as, as deep or as wide well, as you want. Well, you know, it's better than The Apprentice. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, so I, I think I think uh, it's maybe a little bit of even of the pendulum yeah. swinging back yeah. the other way. You know, people yeah. want that long format. They want that information. They yeah. want that 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 more colorful explanation of somebody's process. Right. You know, I've, I've been so enriched by podcasts. Um, it's what brought me to this school and it's what allowed me to connect to communities that I didn't know existed Mm -hmm. uh, when I thought I was getting into something and I was maybe an outlier and I'm like, Oh wow, there's a whole other group of people interested in this. And podcasting really allows people to talk about that more in in depth, the, the long form radio. So yeah, I'm really excited that that we'll be able to share share your stories with a with a yeah. larger audience. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, what are some of the projects you've worked on for uh, with your knowledge man- okay. management sure, skills? Yeah. Those are good questions. Uh, I would say two the two things you mentioned actually in reading through that resume. I mean, one is that I worked on a project that we called originally called the Conservation Commons, and we ended up calling it the Biodiversity Commons. Okay. Um, which was an effort to recognize that all of the information we have about global biodiversity has not been well collated and not well focused. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was working in natural history museums for over 20 years wow. at the California Academy of Sciences and then at the American Museum of Natural History. I actually, as a Buddhist, had sort of a bad conscience in some ways about working. It's like working in a catacomb, if you think about it. Uh. If you really believe <laughs> that all organisms re- should should be respected, these mu- yeah. our museums, we don't actually know worldwide, but we think it's more than 3 billion specimens of all types of organisms have been collected in natural history museums. And by the way, the natural history tradition, pretty largely a product of the, Amer- the European imperialist mm-hmm. uh, experience. Uh, has it changed in recent times as views yes, and within has. the culture are more it progressive? It has changed to, to a certain degree. But those, those residual collections are still out there. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions, the, the point of that was to say that I began to wonder, well, how can I transmute this mm-hmm. exper- these, these large vaults full of many types of dead organisms into something that might be creatively useful? Oh, I love and that. I and other groups of people thought the same thing. I wasn't the only one. I'm not in any way claiming that. But there have been many people who have thought about it. But with our understanding of computer technology and our ability to do data capture in a whole variety of ways, we decided that, of course, we could start to make available data about these collections in aggregate. We can mm-hmm. put together the collections from all around the world and start to develop something much more like an aggregated understanding 
a biodiversity. Now it's still arbitrary and there are still inconsistencies and gaps. It's not a good sample, a perfect sample, but it's a pretty good sample in some respects. And some areas have been much more heavily sampled than others. Um, one of the best collections of Paraguayan plants is at the Geneva Botanical Garden, strangely. And wow. so if you happen to be looking for that, didn't know that, you'd be up, up a creek. But once we started to aggregate these data and make them available through a single international system, we developed, we and the, the community that I was part of developed something called the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which I think is still headquartered in uh, Copenhagen, if I'm not mistaken. And so that was one kind of an example. On the library side of things, we developed something called the Biodiversity Heritage Library. I was at the American Museum in New York. Uh, I had colleagues at the Natural History Museum in London, at the Smithsonian in Washington, another colleague up at, uh, uh, at Harvard, at the Zoological Museum up there. Um, we began to put together the idea that we should digitize and make available the literature of biodiversity worldwide, mm. the journals, the books, everything we could. Even in, in my case, at the American Museum, we did archival work. We actually digitized, we imaged, and then actually uh, had transcribed handwritten field notes from the Congo. And so wow. they've become fully searchable. And you can see the original. So all of this stuff is online? All the stuff you just that, mentioned? That stuff is, is online. The, the Congo material is definitely online. What's the, do you know the site? It's or called, the, uh, or at least the name of it? Probably, well, it's, if you look at the American Museum AMNH, American Museum of Natural History Congo Expedition, you can find it. Wow. And we, we put together, with the support of the Mellon Foundation, by the way, to be very, to give credit where credit is due, we put together a very thorough website on that particular expedition. We did it as a prototype, because we, at the time we were hoping that similar prototypes would be developed for these major natural history expeditions wherever they occurred worldwide. Yeah, I'm not by sure example, that, right? <laughs> yeah, but I'm not sure that it's actually happened to any significant degree, unfortunately, but some of that material is being digitized. Um, but that was one. Uh, another example that we did was uh, working with, I ended up through a series of professional decisions working with the World Commission on Protected Areas in Geneva, part of IUCN, the World Conservation Union. And we worked with the World Conservation... These are a lot of acronyms. Sorry, a lot of names. <laughs> you can't avoid them. World Conservation Monitoring Center in Cambridge, UK. They had a long-standing history of support to protected areas. And they actually had a little database. And, but we put things together there in such a way that we had for the first time a global database of all protected areas, protected areas by protected areas, we mean national parks, national forests, state, state parks, anything that has been set aside basically as public land for protection, marine protected areas. So we put together for the first time a comprehensive database of all the protected areas in the world. Incredible. Is this a public database? Yeah, it's called the World Database, WDPA, World Database on Protected Areas. Amazing. And part of the part of the logic of that was that if you put together the two projects I've just described, we began to put together a historical record of species occurrences worldwide, going back probably 250 years, and a history of where our current database, uh, what our current protected areas worldwide are, we could start to do what's called gap analysis. We could overlay the species occurrence data, at least the current species occurrence data, with the occurrence of protected areas and see to what degree our protected areas are actually protecting endangered species. I'm getting goosebumps as yeah, you're saying yeah. this. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. That's, wow. That's it's called a, gap analysis. an amazing so, use of that, yeah. that information. So that, that was the point, is to, is to end up with 
two data sets at international level that would allow us to actually compare and look at the effectiveness of our world database program. Basically, if you think of it that way, they're actually governed at the national level primarily, although there are international uh, protected areas as well, biosphere reserves, world heritage sites, and so forth. Uh. But nevertheless, these are predominantly national. But what it does do is allow us to tell, if we go to any country, we could tell them, this is where it looks like your species are, yeah. particularly the species of concern, the threatened species, and this is where it looks like your protected areas are. And let's ask how, just a very simple-minded question, how well are your protected areas actually protecting the organisms, the plants and animals that need to be protected? So uh, it's a start. <laughs> is, is that something that has been implemented, or was did you just yeah, do the... both of those things have been implemented. Are, and, and are so they ongoing are, endeavors? Well, yeah, sure. And not only that, but given... I could give you another really interesting example. I have a friend uh, who's, I believe, still at the University of Kansas, Town Peterson, who uh, probably 20 years ago began to take data about species, like species profiles, which includes, by the way, su- habitat suitability, where, where these habitats should be, and was able to take that and then project those suitability factors onto geography, like, say, in Mexico, and predict the occurrence of a rare species because he could say, here's a cluster of habitat characteristics that seem to match the needs for this species. Climate is right. Vegetation is right, uh, you know, so- soil perhaps, altitude, the other factors, and he, he actually was able to successfully predict the occurrence of, a, of an endangered bird simply by looking at those data. That's incredible. So it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant work. And also, by the way, he was able to project the spread of invasive species. Like we were having a big problem oh, in the United wow. States with yeah. new with beetles being introduced. He was able to project, given what we know about those species where they're most likely to go next. So there's a lot of brilliant work going on out there. Sounds like there's yeah, <laughs> so many different yeah, applications yeah. when you have such rich data to work with. Yeah, but you know, Anthony, this is, and this comes back to what I, I think we talked about at the, at the origins of this. We have a lot of knowledge, and we have very effective knowledge tools, but the critical piece is what happens with that knowledge. Hmm. How does that knowledge be, how do we wisely use that knowledge to create policies at local, state, national, international levels to accomplish the goals that we, are, that we have for ourselves. And these goals include, of course, human health, the health of other species, the health of ecosystems, clean water, clean air, all of the factors that, we are, that are most essential to human survival and to the survival of our fellow species on this planet. Yeah. Wow. So... That's yeah, that's incredible. Um, so yeah, go. I guess uh, re- referring back to what we said about uh, the health of the planet is the health of our our health is right. is is linked to that. Uh, our bodies are ecosystems. Yes, yeah, and make, comprise the greater ecosystem. That's right. So uh, w- one of the things I, I absolutely loved about taking your class was that you are the only other individual other than myself that I've ever heard address a group of people a third your age and tell them you are not separate than nature. <laughs> I, yeah. And so I, I don't know how well it was received in the class, but, um, you know, I, I live with my nephews and my mixed reception. My I was mixed reception. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got a kick out of hearing you say that. Cause literally I think like a, within like a couple months before I heard that in your class, yeah. I was 
talking to my nephews and my niece about the very same thing. Yeah, yeah. It, sure. yeah. I mean, they wanted to squash a bug in the house. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, this is a good teaching moment. Let's talk about our, our connection right. to what nature is. That's right. Yeah. yeah so I, I, yeah, I really appreciated that. Um, so with that understanding, uh, what I guess maybe to kind of wrap up our, our time with mm-hmm. knowledge management, what what would you like to see in the future of how that's applied and how how this this uh, change in policy can come about and all the things sure. you, you said of how it needs to be applied? What, what would you what would you that's recommend? A big question, isn't it? Yeah, I know. So I know it's kind of it's it's a hard one to tackle, and well, we, and well, I don't expect any concrete answers. But here's what I'd say. Ideally, what do you think? I, you know, I I started. I went to library school in 1974. And at the time, I studied computers at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm, that was one of the one of the two emphases that I that I uh, focused on. And at that time, I wrote a paper for my professor of information science using Noam Chomsky's deep, deep structure language. I'm not claiming to be a super linguist <laughs> or anything like that. I'm just saying I waded into it. Yeah. And I came up with a concept for an oral that is hearing and and uh, spoken interface between computers and human beings. It seemed to be science fiction at the time. It seemed so far-fetched that, that we, we didn't really believe. Here we are. Siri, can you get the data on that for me? That's right, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly yeah. right. We do it now. We have that capacity. So there's been a huge growth. And for me, the World Wide Web itself is what's really amazing because the World Wide Web is in a certain sense. If... if you enter, not all librarians enter libraries you know, to really share information or to, mm-hmm. to help people, empower people to find their own, satisfy their own information needs. I did. That was part of my, the ethos of librarianship for me. But if you think about it, the World Wide Web has gone far beyond anything I imagined at the time. We now have access to literature, scientific literature, to imagery. Take your pick. And to the very best minds... So we have a tremendous resource out there, but, and here's the, here's the big problem, as an information scientist, anybody who studies information science knows, the signal-to-noise ratio has gotten very, very bad. Yeah. yeah. The noise out there is, is deafening. We just and, listened to a TED Talk in, in yeah. my capstone class, The Paradox of Choice. Right, exactly. Too much choice, and then you're... Well, that's the signal-to-noise ratio. It's, yeah. it's simply saying that the, the material... It's there. I mean, there's, but it's drowned so often in this flood. I mean, that that a national leader of the U.S. could stand up and be convincing people that news is fake and news is false, and there's there's so much to distrust. And well, in a certain sense, he's right. Unfortunately, he's part of the problem, <laughs> not part of the solution. But nevertheless, part of what we have to do is develop critical skills. For on the one hand, we have access to knowledge that we've never had before, worldwide. And this is actually true worldwide. I've, I've worked many, many places worldwide. I remember getting a, a, an email from a veterinary, uh, a guy in veterinary school in Pakistan asking me for information in New York because he couldn't get access to the journals he needed there. Oh, wow. And somehow, somewhere, he got he my got name. Contacts. And he reached out to me and sent me an email. I still have a copy of that email. Yeah. And, you know, and so... The, the information is there, but it's not in any way uniformly distributed. And in some cases, as I mentioned in that story about the National Academy of Sciences, some people locking it down. Mm-hmm. They're trying to, you know, for better or for worse, I'm afraid the Disney Corporation has been an example of some place that has unnecessarily been willing. And I, that's a whole other discussion. I'm not, I don't want to even go there. But there are corporations who information, uh, uh, you know, protecting information 
has become uh, intellectual property has become one of the unquestioned mantras mm-hmm. in the United States, and yeah. I question it. I think that there are many aspects of information uh, intellectual property that should not be locked down. If you have a very large financial stake, the Disney Corporation, I, I say to them, blessings on you. If the Little Mermaid is extremely valuable, Snow White, take your pick. Those, those are your properties, you, but don't lock down the rest of the, the information universe to protect your own device. And that's where I think there's been a lack of subtlety. Up yeah. To this point. Well, I mean, the the argument is that capitalism breeds progress, but we're seeing the exact opposite in, yeah. in this restriction it's of technology for, for and, and information. It's a, it's a form of repression, and so yeah. so the point in all that is to say that one of the things we need to do is we need to develop better tools for identifying the relevant material, the the essential material in this universe, to address that noise to you know signal to noise problem and help people get the signal which in, in the case of global warming or climate change is really a huge amount of data, very, very good data, and to be able to, at, at the same time, develop the critical skills, the acuity, the, analytical, the critical analytical skills to be able to see and understand what is true, what isn't, and what's essential and what isn't essential. Yeah. So all of that's a tall order. I mean, and, it is. And the problem is, even when we haven't been under conditions of urgency, which we now are, apparently, it's been a problem, but now it's 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 an emergent problem. Absolutely, exactly in the sense that we use that word emergency. It's an emergent, urgent problem, and we need to develop these tools. And we can't keep fumbling around with these problems. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I guess my question was how you know how can we implement uh, these these ideas and techniques? Um, but I'm hearing you say that the you know in 2016 the the OED word of the year was post-truth, right? So, and, you know, we live, we're experiencing all this truth decay. So, you know, I'm, I asked about a solution. You're like, well, we need to first be able to decipher what is useful information. And yeah. that's, that's really scary, I think. Well, the RAND Corporation, as you may know, actually used that phrase, truth decay. Mm-hmm. They published a paper uh, or actually a, ser- a report just last year focusing on this problem. And so the question really becomes, how... I, 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 what I want to say is I'm frustrated by the idea that we need to do this democratically. I want to do it democratically, and I want this material to be as free. And that's why I teach here, by the way. That's why I like to teach the classes that I teach, because uh, we have very diverse student body here, and I love to teach in this environment with that kind of diversity. But the challenge is for people to develop their critical analytical skills individually and then to consider how can we step forward and start to apply this. So my course, the course that you took, is called Environmental Leadership, has two very significant components. Of course, the environmental component, which is really getting out the facts as quickly and effectively as possible, presenting this global situation that we're in. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, also getting the people to think as clearly as possible about what leadership actually means. And it goes to your question, really, is that what can we do now and how can we most efficiently do it? And I wish I had a single formula or solution for you, but I'm sure that it involves developing as teachers, as fellow students, as members of organizations that are focused uh, on particular problems, Focusing on being as rigorous intellectually as we can be 
and as rigorous as we can be in terms of the types of evidence. You know, it's interesting that in the United States, or actually perhaps in, in worldwide, in the last, I would say, 20 or 30 years, has been this this catchphrase called evidence-based medicine. Mm-hmm. And I all thought that was a little mm-hmm. ironic because mm-hmm. I, you sort of hoped all along <laughs> that maybe evidence, maybe medicine was evidence-based. Yeah. You, know, you thought, oh, well, maybe <laughs> maybe my doctor really has got some evidence for what he's saying, you know. But th- this has developed as a movement in medicine, you know. And so, but, but the way I take it, actually, I think the most positive way to take it is to say that we're setting more rigorous standards mm-hmm. for the screening and analysis and vetting of data and uh, I have a whole other class that I've never taught, actually, that would actually in detail go through that and talk about that. I've been doing over the years, for example, we have a National Comprehensive Cancer Network that's made up of about 30, now 30 or 40 research, major research institutes in cancer. And they have set up pretty rigorous standards for how they select, how they identify evidence, how they evaluate it, and they have different criteria for evaluating it and making recommendations. For example, if you do... Uh, clinical trials, research-based clinical trials, uh, randomized clinical trials, RCTs, you can, there are certain criteria that they insist on applying. Well, that's great. I mean, I hope if, if and when I ever come, I have cancer, I may have it now for all I know, but when I do, uh, when it, if it happens, uh, I hope that they have really good, solid science. But what I really wish is that we had the same level of rigor and scrutiny for these global problems that are threatening the existence of our entire species in the whole world. Yeah. So that's the big picture image here. We have, to, and the question becomes, in a world where nationalism and sovereignty are hugely problematic, if you think about how long it took us to arrive at the Paris Accords that our president has just unilaterally decided that we're going to not participate in, those accords took couple of decades to actually put together yeah. and they're only voluntary I mean the idea of pulling out of it is ridiculous because we, we were voluntary anyway we were, we're not we're under no international law that forces us to do it but you know the point is that we need to come up with a strategy for thinking systematically systemically into both of those about the global structure where the resistance points are where the obstacles are to one the free flow and access to essential information, data and information, evidence in other words. Mm -hmm. And secondly, what are the major obstacles, the major sticking points for creating global policies that may actually save our our species, save our our grandchildren, our our children and our grandchildren. I tell my classes, you probably heard me say this, I mean, I'm turning 70 this year, and you know, I, you know, I could, I could, I could live thirty years. May not live more than ten. I don't know. I mean, who knows? But the classes I'm teaching, like this morning, those students are almost all in their twenties. Yeah. In a normal, you know, a normal lifetime in the United States, assuming, or, or, or even in China for that matter, those people are gonna, those students are gonna live another forty, fifty, sixty years. Yeah. And the world that they're going to grow up in, they're going to mature in, and their children are going to mature in, is the world I'm talking about. You know. Yeah, 
I, yeah, I, I hope you get to teach that second class. That's something. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed your class because I I thought it gave us the foundational information to Thanks. to be leaders. Yeah. You know, we we tackled the issue of information using the environment as all the examples, yeah. and then we each did that report on the the Goldman Foundation. What That's right, called? the Goldman Foundation. The yeah. Goldman Foundation. So we each did Their a report on the local gra- activists, grassroots activist leaders worldwide. They yeah. Think. So we each got to share uh, a report on a different activist, and that for me was really inspiring. I, you know, I did meta. Putkar from India and how they're uh, challenging That's the right. dams there for, sure. for the local people. But I learned so much from all the reports and they were wonderful examples of what everyday people can do when they rise to the occasion and, and step in to, to speak exactly. truth to power. With courage. Too, with, absolutely, yeah. And and they face tremendous pushback from people with power and money. Yeah. Um, but one of the, I, th- I think I mentioned this to you uh, after the class one time, that, that it left me feeling after the class, like, okay, now I've got all this information, now how do I Apply it, and then I think you said something to the to the to the lines of, "Well, that's that's the question right now. Good how, luck, how can huh? we do it?" Go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's why I, I you know I I would definitely encourage the school to take you up on that second class yeah, because to, it's yeah. it's a it's a strong foundational class to yeah. to get uh, what we need to know to become those future leaders. But too often, I think. We are waited. We wait until we have a problem to look for a solution. That's right. And the we don't. We need to be proactive. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> because this right. this climate issue, it, it seems like it's it's far away, and the scientists keep telling us it's closer and closer, and we're experiencing worse and worse every year. And it's 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 it requires proactivity. That's right. One of the reasons that I like to teach about epidemiology, that I teach about, as I said, cholera, Ebola, and AIDS, is that uh, I remember walking into my Kaiser healthcare facility a few you know year whenever the Ebola crisis was happening in West Africa about three years ago, two or three years ago. And hearing the nurses talking about Ebola. And this is in Culver City, I think, was where I was. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? And, of course, we had just been through the situation where a patient with Ebola had flown from west from Liberia to Houston, yeah. had gone to a local public hospital, and had been sent home with aspirin after he had Ebola, and he died two days later. That got people's attention. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> but the issue home. that you're raising is with climate change, what is it that's going to get people's attention? We know, for example, that Hurricane Dorian that's moving right now, moving up in the Carolinas, and went, wiped out the Bahamas. I, was, I worked in the Bahamas for several years uh, on a regular basis down mm. in Andros Island. We know that the intensity and the... The frequency, probably the frequency, we're not as sure of that, but certainly the intensity of these storms is being seriously affected by climate change, by warming uh, ocean temperatures, which means more moisture in the air, the size of these storms is increasing, and probably the internal dynamic, we're still learning about the internal dynamic of hurricanes, but it's probably being severely affected by climate change. And New York subways were flooded, yeah, you know, by Sandy. Yeah, I mean, I show my class. You probably remember I showed classes pictures of uh, the subway tunnels flooded up to their, you know, up to the the subway platform in Saltwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm originally from New York, and yeah, I, have, yeah. I have friends there, and yeah. it was it was a traumatic experience for sure. people who Absolutely. were there. So these things start to get people's attention, mm-hmm. but the problem is that you know, as you said, most of us, most of the time, are just want to get through. We want to be comfortable. We're, we're pretty complacent. Mm-hmm. Not too many of us are willing to rise to a challenge. And yet, at the same time, it appears that the forcing pressure of climate change is leading us to a point when we have to respond. 
Yeah. And sooner or later, I put a, I just posted a World Bank report uh, on Facebook just two days ago, looking at this question of displaced populations. And they're predicting that very soon, within the next few years, we're going to see as many as 180,000, 200,000 people. Climate refugees? Climate refugees yeah. moving around the planet. And it's going to get much worse. Yeah. If you look at Bangladesh, mm-hmm. you look at the many other places where there are Yeah, they're saying the heat waves across North India, Bangladesh are going to right. be... I mean, there's another very interesting report horrible. that just... I mean, we could go on and on. There's another yeah. interesting report saying that people's with taking uh, psychotropic meds, for example, are homeless people, many of mm-hmm. whom are being given drugs as they live on the street, that the effects of those drugs are adversely affected by increases in temperature. Yeah. That bipolarity, if you're a bipolar without drugs, that, that, that heat can increase the intensity of your experiences, and that some psychotropic drugs are also being affected by heat. You know what, I... I saw something a couple of days ago that was saying low-income areas tend to be like 10 degrees hotter uh, and it's just like city planning and whatnot. And Earth Island, I mean uh, city island effects, that's part of what goes on for sure. Mm. Yeah. There have been a lot of studies in that area, yeah. Wow. No doubt. Yeah, we could list a lot of examples. Uh, so let's, yeah, yeah. let's switch gears a little bit yeah, here. Sure. Uh, you mentioned you really enjoy uh, teaching here at this university, University mm-hmm. of the West, because it is, is diverse and it's open and mm-hmm. we've got the, the Buddhist influence at our liberal arts college. Um, so I, I want to move into the class you teach here in uh, Buddhist sure. addiction recovery. Sure. But maybe before we, we get into Buddhism and addiction recovery, uh, mm-hmm. how, did you, how did you come to, to teach here? How did, what, what, well, what led, what led you here? Well, it's a good question. I'm, I, I was working, I was, uh, I've been on the board of a number of different organizations. I was on the board of a group called Buddhist Global Relief. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a very well-known um, Buddhist scholar, probably the best-known, one of the best, very best-known translators of the original Buddhist text, the Pali Canon, yeah. into English, uh, was based, when I was working in New York, he was based in New Jersey at a, uh, a Mahayana, Chinese Mahayana monastery down there. And I heard he was down there, and I thought, well, I think I'll go down some weekend, and I heard him give a talk, and he was giving a class in Pali, the mm-hmm. original language of Buddhism, and uh, I began to take that class. I got to know him. He asked me, we got to know each other, he asked me to serve on the board of Buddhist Global Relief. Oh, great. So, and through that contact, I got to know the, the then head of the chaplaincy program here at University of the West, Danny Fisher. Danny has since left the university, but the program continues to be a strong the lar- if I'm not mistaken, the largest Buddhist chaplaincy program in the world. And so I, I uh, got to know Danny, and Danny also knew, we haven't talked about it in this, in this interview, but I uh, have had myself, have had to deal with substance abuse in my life. And um, so I had been looking, in fact, my own experience with substance abuse was that Buddhism was very significant in helping me to come to terms with my own uh, problems with addictions and alcoholism and addiction. So uh, Danny knew that. We talked about it for a while, and he invited me to come and teach a course in the chaplaincy program, which I did. Uh, I was sort of, I had taught at Pratt Institute when I was in New York, but this was the first time I'd actually tried to teach a course, which was primarily not based on my professional academic experience, but more on my personal experience, both with Buddhism for going on 50, over 50 years now, but also with recovery from alcoholism addiction, which is been well over 30 years now mm. so bringing those two things together Danny and I talked about it and he said well why don't you give it a try and um, for those who haven't thought about it 
it's essential for people studying to be chaplains to be able to understand, at least have a working understanding of the impacts and the effects of Buddhism, of uh, alcoholism and addiction uh, on our communities. Yeah. And so that was the, that's the, the the story of how I got here. And then that's the, great. I got from I'm, I'm forgetting which year it was. But I think it's been probably five, six, maybe even seven years since I started teaching. And then once I got here and began to teach, I ended up being able to teach in other areas as well. And what other courses do you teach? Well, I, 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 the the two are the the two that I've taught consistently are one on Buddhism and addiction, which is now in the psychology department. And the other is a basic course in environmental leadership that you've mm-hmm. taken, which is based on my professional experience, and that's in liberal arts. And then you've helped out in some of my but other I've classes. I've like different psychology classes. philosophy class with well, Karen Gelinas you helped out in. Yeah, and that's right. A few yeah. other things. They, they, they get you on board uh, here co- and there. <laughs> I helped to co-teach a course in Buddhist psychology. I've yep. taught courses in trauma and religion. I did, even did a social psychology course at one point. So oh, cool. helping to try and pinch it and help out in different areas. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think I may have said this before, but it was a podcast that got me to this school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny Fisher came out on Buddha, oh, I the, know the Buddhist Geeks podcast mm-hmm. and he did an interview. And I had heard about that. And in reading a transcript, I saw that, uh, oh, wow, that's, there's a Buddhist school in Rosemead. Right, and I was, looking, right. I was looking to come back to L.A. And I was yeah. like, I think I'll go back to school. And by the way, it's one of L.A.'s best kept secrets. Yeah. It's, unfortunately. It's a treasure. <laughs> it's a treasure. Um, but, yeah, so that's, that's how I got here. Um, and and to, the, to the idea of a, a addiction and giving back from our own experience, um, but before I came here, I, I was listening to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listened to a lot of Dharma talks, and mm-hmm. I listened to this one woman speak, and she had overcome her her eating disorder, mm-hmm. and was I, I forget if she was uh, a nun or not, but she was uh, deeply embedded in Buddhist communities, mm-hmm. and she was leading this this mm-hmm. discussion, and she said she had always thought she was going to do some kind of amazing thing and, and contribute to the world and help people in some amazing way and she didn't realize it was it blew her away to realize that it was her own addiction recovery that would be her gift to give back right and i myself that i mean maybe i was in my second or third year of sobriety when i heard that and it nearly brought me to tears because i i've had that direct experience in my own healing sharing my own journey of healing whether it was going to therapy or just quitting alcohol, uh, just trying to love myself and be a better person, it's rubbed off on people in my community or, or, or given them at least pause for thought on their own actions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, I think it's, yeah, it's really important for people who are on a healing path to, to just talk about it. You know, I'm not telling anybody what they need to do or they should do and, you know, by all means in, indulge yeah. and get it out of your system if you need to. But when you're ready and if you're ready, there is a path and it, it's mm-hmm. been successful. So now I'm coming up on my eighth year without alcohol. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, or I guess this is the eighth year. It'll be the eighth anniversary in December. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make a further comment about that. One is just two, two things quickly. One is that it's an interesting fact that the Buddha, when he picked the five basic ethical precepts for Buddhism, which are pretty much accepted worldwide. Which are no killing, no stealing, no are, lying, yeah, no yeah. sexual misconduct, and no Bhikkhu Bodhi has it down to five words. Ah. So it's harmlessness, honesty, faithfulness, truthfulness, and sobriety. I like so it. you can say it in five terms. I meditate with those five. So the fifth one, of course, is sobriety, which is very... And so it's a very interesting thing to ask. Well, when he was considering these problems five, 2,500 years ago, isn't it interesting that the Buddha named sobriety or abstention from substances that cloud the mind, drugs, alcohol, and other, Thich Nhat Hanh suggests many other things, 
that abstention from those things became a high, high priority for him. Now, I've, I've written an article that Dan, actually Danny published and the co, or co-published uh, where, where I, I mentioned that in Buddhist mythology, there's a lot of, there's some mythology about what the Buddha, who the Buddha was before he got, he got, in, he became enlightened, or before he went forth, before he became a monk. Mm-hmm. And he grew up in a palace. So it's very probable that he was exposed to inebriation, to people. He, we don't know. It's possible that he himself got drunk at some point, but he certainly saw other people who were suffering from addictions. Mm-hmm. India, there was alcohol and drugs in India at that time. And it's sort of like California in the, ni- in the tw- you know, 21st century. There was a lot of material to be exposed to. And so he, he made a decision that it was really critical to address that for anyone that was going to practice Buddhism in the way that he was suggesting that we practice. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to mention very quickly is just to say that the American Psychological Associ- or Psychiatric Association has a process that's called differential diagnosis, which is how they suggest that a therapist or psychiatrist, a series of steps that they go through in, a, in first, first uh, encountering a new patient, a potential new patient. But the steps are, number one is you want to rule out malingering. You don't want, if somebody, if it appears, you have to ask yourself, are they really presenting a problem? But the number two issue that they suggest eliminating is drug or alcohol addiction. Is this person under the influence of drugs or alcohol? This is before you look at any other comorbidities, Mm -hmm. any other co-occurring factors like bipolarity or anything else. They say, number one, rule out drugs and alcohol. It because, alters the baseline. Because if, exactly. If you don't address that, and if you don't find that and address it immediately, you're going to have a very, very difficult... It's not impossible, but you're going to have a very difficult time getting to the maybe perhaps deep-seated, more underlying problems. Mm-hmm. So, and, it, it, you know, therap- you know, psychiatrists, psychologists talk about this in a lot of different ways, but nevertheless, I think there's a f- reason that their, their strategy for differential diagnosis highlights the importance of addressing alcohol and drugs first yeah before you get to the other factors that are that may or may not be present so yeah that's valuable for sure um so before i ask you about uh what buddhist addiction recovery is and what you teach in that class i think maybe for people who aren't familiar with buddhism uh just i would like to say what the four noble truths are because i think that's kind of found foundational to to this discussion absolutely um so as we said, there are a great variety of traditions within Buddhism, but they all kind of fall back on some of the central tenets, which right. include, like you said, the five precepts and Buddha's, one of what is said to be Buddha's first teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the right. Eightfold Path. So the Four Noble Truths say that uh, dukkha exists, and dukkha is often translated as suffering, or it can be inherent dissatisfaction. We might think of the hedonic treadmill. You get what you want, and you always want something else. And so it's this idea that you, you, you're always wanting something, or you're always wanting to reject that which you don't want. And that creates suffering. So suffering exists in the world, and it's part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number, number two... Uh, Our attachment to the things that we want, our cravings, our thirst, our hunger, and our aversion to things we don't want is the cause of a lot of this suffering. Mm -hmm. So it's it's our attachment to our cravings and aversions. And the third one is that if we can curb our attachment to our craving and aversion, we can curb our suffering. 
mm-hmm. and some I call it cessation, whether it can be stopped altogether or not. And maybe there's some debate, but certainly mm-hmm. being less attached to these cravings mm-hmm. generates far less suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path. There is a path to achieve this cessation, and we don't have to go into all of that, uh, but there are some practical steps for how, right. to, how to live your life with the Eightfold Path. So I think it's really uh, interesting that you have the Four Noble Truths plus the Eightfold Path, and for math scholars, they'll already know that 4 plus 8 equals 12, right. and so I would say that Buddhism is the original 12-step program. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for, so for all of us, by yeah, the way. for all of us, because I, you know, we're are, we're all addicted to getting what we want and avoiding right. what we don't want. Yeah, and so yeah, I think uh, in the path towards happiness and well-being uh, and understanding truth, uh, this is it's a wonderful method for getting over our addictions. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I, I'd like to at some point get to as we talk about it is the sure. difference between the. Buddhist addiction recovery and the traditional AA 12-step program. Mm, sure. Um, but before we get to that, maybe we can say, uh, w- uh, what is Buddhist addiction recovery and how, how, how do you teach it in that class? Well, it, it's, <laughs> I, teach it, I, te- I teach it for a whole semester. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I, I'll just make a few comments that maybe that'll help with, in response to your question. First of all, as you said, or you implied, uh, this notion of the first noble truth or dukkha or suffering suffering is has a little bit of a melodramatic mm-hmm. perf, i would say purple so i try to give it a few extra yeah, words you did, there. You did. And, and there are some excellent essays out there that sort of give the the full range of experiences that constitute what the buddha was talking about by yes. dukkha uh it can be distress disturbance uh just uh, Ill, feeling ill at ease malcontent, discontent. I mean, it's a whole suite of, uh, of problems or issues that human beings experience, which when we talk about them, almost everybody says, yeah, oh yeah, I have that. Maybe not all the time. I mean, that's part of the trick. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, so there's a whole suite of problems there. And there's a, one, a Buddhist scholar, that, or a Buddhist, uh, actually Buddhist psychiatrist that I like, Mark Epstein, has a book called Everyday Trauma. There's been a lot of discussion of trauma in our culture, probably driven as much by the number of returning Vietnam vets and then veterans from other wars, and the beginning to really recognize uh, what's called attachment disturbances, the impacts on children of painful or difficult experiences, the failure of caretakers and caretaking environments to provide a secure and happy place. So... Taking those kinds of situations together, many, many of us experience trauma in different ways. And one of the ways that we cope with it, to think in terms of our our second tradition and of the noble traditions in Buddhism, is to say we, um, we often, because we can't fully acknowledge that we've suffered in those ways, or, the, or because it's so painful to acknowledge that we've suffered in those ways, that we seek aversion. We try to avoid or dissociate from those feelings and those experiences. And of course, one of the primary ways that we do that is with drugs and alcohol. It's a form of dissociation, of trying to self-medicate, make ourselves feel more comfortable. In my case, uh, I began to drink and unfortunately in the 60s began to use some drugs uh, I say unfortunately because I don't believe in either one of them now, but um, 
pretty early on in my experience in college, when I was off by myself, I was an immature young man, and I was struggling with how to come to terms with what does it mean to be a man in this world, or a woman for that matter, or a human being? What does that mean? How do, how do we come to terms with that reality? And it was extremely discomforting. You know, I was really, you know, un, I did and I, by the way, didn't know that I was. I was struggling, and I was really, really unhappy. Mm-hmm. And then, through some set of conditional circumstances at my university, uh, some people said, try this. I did. And I felt fine. <laughs> what I, was this? To drink. Just to drink oh, some alcohol. Yeah, yeah. I said, I feel fine. This, this is good. This feels good. And so that was it for me. And that, that set me off in a path. And I now know, by the way, we know that there's a genetic component to alcoholism. It turns out families do not normally talk about alcoholism and addiction. They don't like to. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I know, if I look at my four grandparents, I know up three of those family trees, there are, is some evidence of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I had a great uncle who was a World War I vet who went up in the logging camps in Oregon. Had another uncle, an uncle that came to my father's funeral with a briefcase full of fifths of alcohol. Uh, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. Um, and so there are lineages of alcoholism. That's, we're pretty sure about that. I'm not blaming it on that. I'm just saying that the precondition, that's one of the, seems to be one of the preconditions for uh, a tendency to become alcoholic or, or perhaps addictive as well. It's certainly my experience. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's there. And as I said, families, most families are in denial about it. They say, oh, well, he was funny or he just had... You know, had some. They come up with. You know, by the way, the, the the actual they actually do some true accounting for deaths in the United States. They've made efforts to do that because doctors, out of respect for families, very often will not put down oh. drugs or alcohol anywhere near the death certificate. Wow. They'll explain it in other ways. So there yeah. have been efforts to try and go back and account for the real causes of death in the United States, and wow. it's a very different number. Yeah, there is data. You can look that up. There's, there, there are papers and data on all of that. I mean, there are many, many other costs of, of addiction and alcoholism, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but nevertheless, just to come back to your question, it, it's just a question of... Uh, and so Buddhism provides a, a pretty good understanding, not just about drugs and alcohol, but about all of the ways that we develop mental states that divert us or lead us away from facing the reality of our lives, mm-hmm. the basic truths of being alive which certainly include, if we're lucky, growing old, sickness, death. Jim Morrison said there's no exit, or no, Jean-Paul Sartre said there's no exit. Jim Morrison said there's no way out of here alive. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, take your pick. But I'm just saying it's a reality of the world. And some people hear that and they think of that, well, that's morbid. Well, it's not morbid. It's just, it's better to engage with the truth, and that's the truth, than it is to, to try and live in a fantasy world where that isn't the truth. And the Buddha's lesson was that if we engage with that truth, we can come to terms with it. And we can and in fact it will increase our gratitude for what we do have in our lives, for the people that we meet in our lives, increase our sensitivity and our ability to respond wisely to the world as we see it. Mm-hmm. And it will also ultimately lead us to the recognition that every human being, everybody is motivated by more or less these same constituent problems. Uh, and we talk about the three poisons in Buddhism of appetite or greed, of ill will or hatred, hostility, judgment, and finally ignorance, simply being unaware 
of the reality. And I was saying to our class this morning, in my opinion, virtually every human problem, I think every human problem, can be analyzed in terms of some combination of those three factors. Yeah. I think the Buddha was right on 2,500 years ago. So, Yeah, and uh, the author David Loy talks That's about right. how these three poisons are institutionalized in our society these days. Right, and David Loy talks about the environment a lot, too. Absolutely. Fact, he's leading a workshop this next year, I think, in... Uh, Barry, Massachusetts, at the Ins- yeah. Insight Meditation Center. Yeah, his, the book that just came out at the top of this year yep. is uh, Eco Dharma. Yeah, I've got yeah, it. It's on the shelf. I haven't yeah. haven't cracked it open yet, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you teach this class to psychology students who uh, graduate level psychology students who are going on to be MFTs and Master of Divinity students as well, and chaplaincy students as well. This last we taught it last semester, and we had about a half and half split. And mm-hmm. there were there were several monks. We'll say there was one monk and several nuns, I believe, in the class last semester. So yeah, um, it's always flattering to me to be able to say I'm teaching nuns and monks. Yeah, that's that's one of one of <laughs> I'm the laughing things. At, I'm laughing I at my, my, van, my own vanity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so uh, a side note, something I wanted to mention is uh, your social media feed is wonderfully curated. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I I really enjoy. You have some some really interesting articles, and mm-hmm. I I tr- trust your knowledge mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, vetting. So I I, I always mm-hmm. uh, am curious, I try to curious be careful. To <laughs> I try to be careful what I put up. There. Yeah, but you also uh, post when you're around town at different uh, places, and one of the things that you sometimes post is that you're meditating at Homeboy Industries or right. other places around town. Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious if you share. Any uh, or do you just go meditate there, or do you do any kind of no, informal I help, teaching? I, I help lead the classes, the meditation classes. Uh, Father Mark Torres is the director of spiritual development at Homeboys. I think I've been going down there five years now, something like five. Years. Can we say what Homeboy Industries? Oh yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. Homeboy Industries is based in downtown Los Angeles. It was started in the 1980s by Father Greg Boyle. Uh, Father Greg is a Jesuit, as is Father Mark, my friend Father Mark. Uh, they actually share a, a Jesuit residence down on Boyle Heights. Uh, Father Greg was assigned to Dolores Parish, you know, I think in 1982, which was at that time the poorest parish in all of Los Angeles. And he landed down. He grew, he grew up in L.A., and he landed down there, and he's in an area that includes two separate housing projects that are set also, the way this goes, separate gang turfs. And so the area between them is often a, a war zone. And so Father Greg became pretty quickly aware of all of this. And he used to go out and ride his bicycle. He, by the way, he did a little time in Bolivia, too. He got sent, the Jesuits sent him down there. But he came back, and it, it, one of the stories I love is he was riding his bicycle. He's out there, you know, this white guy. This was almost 40 years ago, so he must have been in his late 30s, early 40s, something like that. Um, riding his bike around at night, and he sees a, a basically a gang fight developing. Groups of people, big crowd, people are starting to, to argue. You can hear the voices. So he tries to intervene. He walks out into the middle of this group, and one of the people pulls out a gun, a handgun, points it right at his forehead, right in front of him. And Father Greg says to himself, well, I guess my ministry is over. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, he was not shot. Yeah. What he did do is he persevered in that environment. He worked out of the, the, the church, the Dolores Church down there, and a major breakthrough for him happened when he realized that one of the fundamentals that he could offer there was not just 
his teaching as a Jesuit, as a, a Catholic priest, but also when he realized that it, that if people simply were not didn't feel that they were in these dead end environments where they couldn't escape, that maybe that would make a difference. And so he ended up being able to, by a strange set of circumstances, to acquire a bakery, and he began a training program for some of these. Uh, men and women that he was working with, I think mostly men at the, at, the, at the outset, but he set up a program where they could learn to be bakers, and then they started producing breads. In fact, I forgot I was going to bring some over here today. I, forgot to bring, I was going <laughs> to leave it for the, for the students in the class. I'll have to bring it next time. Uh, but anyway, so that was the start of it. But what, where it went from that was it developed into a full-service community program, so that today, if you go down to the corner of Bruno and Alameda, it's about Interestingly enough, it's about three blocks from the California Endowment and about five blocks from Union Station in downtown Los Angeles, very near the Chinatown subway stop. There's a two-story building down there, and he provides services to, I think on the order of 1,500 or at any given time, full enrollees in the program. Mm -hmm. And the program includes uh, people coming out of prisons are being given a full set of basic training programs in parenting skills. What does it mean to be a parent? Uh, they're given opportunities for therapy. They're given opportunities on how to write resumes. They're given job direction or how to find skill sets. I've known people that were getting metalworking skills, welding, a variety of really basic uh, tools so they could go out and find work. Wow. They have an honor roll up on the wall down there. People yeah. that have gone out. Some people have gone to work in the in the industry in Hollywood. Oh wow. So that there's a very large selection. Uh, they've been very, very successful. And they continue to provide. And one of the interesting things, Mayor Villaraigosa, former Mayor Villaraigosa of Los Angeles was down there. I heard him speak down there. And uh, he, he used to have tattoos. That's a, mm -hmm. a newsflash. <laughs> uh, but he realized that a lot of these guys with gang tattoos all over their necks and faces and hand, arms were having a very hard time finding work because mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a form of scarring. Yeah, and so he helped them acquire tattoo removal machines, and they have a tattoo removal program that runs pretty much uh, five days a week from morning to night, and every single day people are going in there, and doctors are coming in and volunteering their time, uh, you know, sur you know, uh, cosmetic surgeons, people that do that work, are volunteering pro bono and giving that service to Homeboy Industries, so. Um, my my first guest on the podcast, uh, yeah. Pat Cornett, he. He grew up, ended up in gangs, and then mm -hmm. went to the military. And then when he got out, mm -hmm. he had a hard time getting a job. And he mentioned that he actually got some face tattoos removed at Homeboy Industries. Well, Father Greg tells a story. One of the people he was working with who had on his forehead tattooed, F the world. Wow. And it wasn't just the F. Yeah. And he, he's, and he said, you know, Father, I'm having a hard time finding a job. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, yeah. I, I know uh, I know a person, a woman who has F U tattooed under her eyes mm -hmm. you know so you can see i mean and how people and why people get these tattoos that's a good question that's worth pondering and asking yourself why in our culture and society are people arriving at this point in their lives and so father greg has tremendous love and sympathy for this population of people and he one of his his one of his uh comments that I like the best that he says ultimately or sooner or later we all come to realize that kindness is the only strength there is mm. kindness is the only strength there is and he acts out of that and has for a very long time
I'm, I have a little bit of trouble with some of the Catholic Church, but when it comes to the Jesuit branch, I'm always completely yeah. awestruck with the level of sincerity that they bring to their their devotion towards being kind and inviting people in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really wonderful. Well, I've see. had my problems with the Jesuits, too. So oh, really? <laughs> I went to Georgetown University, which is a uh. Jesuit university, <laughs> and we had a little bit of difficulty, mm-hmm. I and the Jesuits, but... I, I have gone long past that myself. Yeah. I hope they have too. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so we, we took a field trip down there, and right. they, they've got a full-service restaurant as well, That's delicious right. food. and, and Homegirl Cafe. Homegirl Cafe. And, uh, yeah, people coming through. You can Anybody can go down there and, and enjoy some good food. It's really an amazing. Right. And we took a tour. Yeah given by a former gang member and yeah that was a really wonderful experience i think for the whole class yeah, i definitely re- really that. enjoy yeah. it yeah, okay. so uh, i'm curious uh how do you share your inf- your knowledge of buddhist addiction recovery differently with uh, a group of people who are struggling than you do with people who are looking to be professionals well it's a, it's a, in, that, in that field it's a whole spectrum i mean yeah, everybody the first thing to do is for to get every human being who's who, whoever they are whether they're mft students or chaplaincy students or people right out of prison i just yesterday was teaching down there at homeboys and was talking to a guy who had fresh out of 20 years in prison wow and he was trying to work out he was very, uh, my initial response was he's a very sweet guy, mm-hmm. very friendly, and and I I could see his gratitude. But my opinion is that first thing to do is to get everyone to recognize we're all on a spectrum. I don't believe in that there's an elite group over here that has has a special proprietorship for knowledge and wisdom and grace, if you will. And then there's the rest of us folk over here on the other side. It's a spectrum. And part of it is getting everyone to recognize the degree to which they're caught up in dukkha or suffering or disturbance. Now, it presents itself in different ways. Obviously, we don't all here at U.S. not some people have tattoos, but not too many. You know, certainly not too many of the faculty that I'm aware of, you know. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, uh, but it's very important to recognize that these problems are not cosmetic. They're not superficial. They're actually common problems for all human beings. That's what I was trying to say a little earlier about addiction. Addiction and alcoholism is a specialized form of aversion, it's a, in my opinion. And, and, by the way, you know, one of our Buddhist teachers likes to say we walk around in a trance of habits. Mm-hmm. That we just, we're, most of us, most of the time, walk around unconscious of our thought processes, of our speaking, our speech, and of our actions. And so getting everyone to acknowledge at some point that there is this common factor that the Buddha identified is really fundamental. Now, having said all that, <laughs> there are extremities of response to that, to that circumstance. Now, not everybody becomes an alcoholic addict. You know? Not everyone becomes a heroin addict. I mean, not, people don't all respond to trauma or distress or dukkha in the same way. Yeah. So that's very important to, to acknowledge. But... It's a common human experience. And so we have to adjust our teaching. Like if I'm teaching meditation, in fact, I was ask- it was interesting. I was asking a class this morning. I was talking to him about my experience yesterday down at Homeboys. And I was asking, to- asking our class, well, what do you think are the common responses if you ask someone who's had serial trauma in their life, trauma from birth, trauma in the family, trauma in the neighborhood, in the community, in the schools, in the prisons, in the gangs, who's experienced all that kind of trauma. 
let's take you take such a person and ask them to sit down and meditate. What are most probably the common responses that you're going to get? What are very common responses? Frustration, anger, well, agitation. That was the first thing somebody said. One of the students said, yeah, angry. They, they're they're going to resent it. And that does happen occasionally. Now, at Homeboys, they've already joined the program. In theory, they're here. They're there to participate. Mm-hmm. But I've certainly heard that. In fact, Father Mar- I haven't had it happen to me yet, but Father Mark has had someone pop up in the middle of a meditation and walk over and stand right in front of him and aggressively start to resist what was going on. Mm-hmm. It can happen. But even beyond that, the more common responses are, one is an in, simply an ability to stay quiet, to actually needing to move, needing to act, needing to look at your device, your phone, your smartphone, whatever it is, needing to not being able to sit quietly for as long as 20 minutes, but needing to distract yourself mm-hmm. and get yourself away from to aver, avert that experience. Now, the second most common thing, or maybe the first most common thing, when you get people into an environment like that, you have a, a, a darkened room, you have quiet and peace, you may be playing, playing Tibetan bells, so there are different ways to do it. It's for people just to go to sleep. People simply go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Jack Cornfield, one of our famous California teachers, says it's yeah. a poor man's nirvana. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little, I mean, that's a little bit cynical, but it's, but it's also fair mm-hmm. that people, you give people who are experiencing their life as a, as a struggle, as stress, as dukkha on an ongoing basis, and who are used to finding distractions as one form of diversion, Another way is that suddenly, they think, oh, and they relax and go to sleep. Yeah. And I, I, we had a workshop here about a year ago. I can't remember if you were there, but we got together four different people, who, two of whom are teaching. One is a Vietnamese monk. One is a, um, a South Asian woman who's teaching at the University of California. Both of them have been teaching in prisons, teaching meditation and yoga. Third one is our head of psychology here at, at U.S., Ashley Coleman, who's a, a black woman who grew up in Oakland and is head of psychology here. And then there's me, uh, older white guy sitting here. And we all were talking about our common experiences in these situations. And we all more or less agreed that, yeah, well, sleep, <laughs> you know, relaxation and sleep is one of the most natural responses when per- people first try to meditate. Mm. They're not driven by spiritual ambition to stand up, sit up straight, and make everything happen. So it's very normal for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Leaving that aside, the next question began, begins to be, if I can assure people that there is a reason for practicing. This morning we had a, a student that I've taught for quite a long time who's a soccer player. And uh-huh. I said, I said, Guillermo, how long have you been playing soccer? And he said, I said, eight years. And he said, no, ten. Ten years. <laughs> and I said, how many times a week do you play? And he said, oh, th- probably three times a week. And I said, well, you know, it's the same way with meditation. You practice. You don't just spontaneously or very very few people spontaneously develop strong meditation practice Mm -hmm. you simply have to be resilient and consistent tenacious if you will in your practice of meditation but when you do that i told the class this morning i promise you i absolutely promise you that it will change your life if you're willing to make that level of effort on a daily basis and even if you only do you know, they've done studies up at the King County Women's Detention Center in, in Washington State, and they wired up women in the detention center and found that when they did 10 minutes a day, 
they got measurable results in brain brain responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ten minutes a day. Uh, it, it impacts my life if I can. Yeah, if I, I know you do. Yeah, minutes. I know you do. That. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> that little bit. So I guess. Um, if somebody's starting out, cause so yeah, a lot of techniques will allow you to sit with those difficult emotions that arise, or if right. you feel restless, you acknowledge it or, yeah, right. or look at you it. Notice it, yeah. But for for somebody that's just getting into it and overwhelmed by that restlessness or aversion to the practice, is that the advice you would give them? Just kind of keep trying. I don't like tell them to get up and move for one thing. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, don't don't punish I mean, yourself. Not, right, exactly. Try, I, mean, I tell I tell people go for if a you walk need, and if come you, back if you have to move, do that. And I also tell them, as in the Buddhist tradition, there are four types of meditation. Mm-hmm. There's walking, sitting, lying down, and standing. Yeah, all four of those are, are within the Buddhist tradition are acceptable practices. So I tell them you can change your posture and try that. Mm-hmm. But try, and I say just do the best you can. Try and be resilient to the best you can do it to the mm-hmm. best you're able to to accomplish that. Try and be relaxed and resilient to the best of your ability. And be patient. There's a lovely passage that comes from the from St. Paul in the Bible, the New Testament, that says, by your patience, possess your soul. Hmm. And it's a very lovely passage. I use that as a mantra to these days. I'm not, well, I don't know. I, I suppose I'm a Christian on some level. Not, not orthodox in any way. But, but that phrase, by your patience, possess your soul is to me very very useful very helpful very kind and gentle guidance you know hmm. i like that mm-hmm. yeah uh in my experience doing some movement before static sitting is yeah. tremendously helpful so generally i i like to do some yoga before i sit and meditate sure. but when i've gone to retreats or stayed at a monastery sometimes they'll have us do even at some places required to do 10 minutes of walking meditation before you do the sitting. It's a very common practice. And my goodness, it it helps me to settle into the space. Normally, I have to sit for about 20 minutes before I can settle into the space <laughs> and, I agree. St- and stop being so restless. But if I do that 10 minutes of walking before I sit down, it, just a couple of minutes, if that, and, and I'm... I'm feeling yoga, more comfortable yoga is very important i think it's a, you know it's a form by the way sitting meditation is a form of devotional yoga in my opinion mm-hmm. it's not it's not something separate from that mm-hmm. but i can say when i began to meditate i was used to be quite strong i, I did a lot of weightlifting from the time i was a young man uh i did 100 mile bike rides i did try uh, one triathlon once in over in switzerland wow. i've done a lot of different forms of but i was a little too strong in conventional ways and not flexible enough to be comfortable in doing my yoga, yeah, I'm doing my meditation, my yoga, my devotional yoga. So yeah, well, uh, they say you do yoga asana. Asana is the they call it postures now, but it literally yeah. it's it's seat. It means yeah. seat because that's the original yoga posture uh-huh. is, is seated, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, that's great. So uh, before before we wrap up or talk about Buddhist meditation, I, I did want to ask you what what's the difference in the approach from the AA program? And uh, maybe before you answer that, mm-hmm. I'll just share my experience in recovery. So. Uh, I've been going to AA meetings since the time I was a kid because I went with my dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but when it came time for my own recovery, I had no desire to go to AA because one of the tenets is you have to give up your power to a higher authority. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I needed to be empowered to make my decision to abstain. And also there's, I don't want to say a, a culture of relapse, but 
there's there's a lot of discussion of relapse and when people sit around talking about things uh, I, I don't know if i could sit around in a room and talk about drinking all day without wanting to go out and drink so mm-hmm. i avoided a program and i didn't get into buddhism heavily until maybe a year or two after i was already sober mm-hmm. so what i did for abstaining from alcohol is i just made myself busy i started i woke up super early and cleaned my whole house and garage over and over i ended up getting uh, two jobs in a volunteer position so i was waiting tables at two places and then volunteering at the la county arboretum and botanical gardens um and uh, at the risk of t- triggering anybody, and I don't mean to in- encourage anybody in the wrong way, but I also increased my cannabis intake, which is maybe mm-hmm. swapping out one thing for the other, mm-hmm. um, but it certainly was less harmful and allowed me to, I don't know, just to, to be more present. Because mm-hmm. it, 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 it is definitely a way to avoid things, but mm-hmm. I engaged with it. But anyway, so I, I didn't do any programs. I ended up making a sober friend at work, and we hung out a lot, and so I had some support from an individual person. But I didn't, I didn't do a program, although it's tremendously helpful. And as I went on, I felt like I, I did need somebody to talk to from time to time, and that wasn't always available to me. So that could have been nice. Um, but what, so what, what would you say is the difference between the AA approach and uh, a Buddhist recovery well, I wanna, approach? I want to be careful in talking about this because I, um, uh, I, what I will say is that I have a lot of familiarity with 12-step programs and how they operate. And I know that I teach about it, the 12-step literature. And in fact, the article I wrote for Danny uh, Fisher in his book, Thousand Hands, um, talks about 12-step programs. Uh, so what I can tell you uh, is that uh, it's, it's a common reaction for people to think that AA actually developed from a Christian program, the Oxford Groups, back in the 1930s, which was actually sort of a, an effort to uh, rediscover. It's interesting, in the early, in the early 19, uh, 20th century, there, were a couple of, there was a Buddhist movement in Thailand, the Thai forest tradition, mm-hmm. that was trying to rediscover original Buddhism. And in the United States and, other, and in England, there was this Oxford Group movement, which was trying to sort of rediscover Christianity. Anyway, so the AA in the 30s, developed in the 1930s, had its roots in that tradition. But the AA literature, as it's developed, has become very clearly non-denominational. And the question of the fact that they use the word God, they have a pamphlet in AA now called the God Word that talks about uh, problems that many people have. And there are agnostic AA meetings. There are meetings in 12 steps. From my opinion, the... The AA literature is very, very clear. AA is not specifying that you have any one particular belief system. In fact, AA says, God as you understand God, mm-hmm. which leaves a pretty wide open door. Yeah. And for me, the problem, the problem that I experienced as an alcoholic was that I... Um, the AA literature says the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot although he usually doesn't think so. (laughs) So acknowledging that self-centeredness, the obsession with self, was actually what I experienced in my drinking and using was a really important thing for me to acknowledge. Uh, I needed, you know, in Buddhism we have a concept called papancha, which means the elaboration of self. It's It's an early Pali concept. It simply means that the self elaborates and develops and expresses itself. 
in every form, you know, our, our personal cosmetic vanity, our clothing, our, you know, our uniforms, if we wear those, our credentials, our resumes, and, and on and on and on, our vocabulary, the, using code words that, you know, it, it goes on and on and on and on. Only with alcoholics and addicts, it becomes extreme. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the idea in, in recovery is to find a way to transcend that self-centered isolation and separation and to find the inspiration to transform our lives. And I believe that that's what both Buddhism, you know, in my experience, that's what Buddhist recovery movement does. And I believe that's what AA also does, uh, 12-step programs and other programs too. Those aren't the only options. There are many people have recovered in all sorts of ways. Carl Jung talked about that. He said he was aware of people who recovered way before there were 12-step programs or Buddhist recovery, for that matter. Of course, yeah. So there have been many, many approaches to this problem. But it's quite rare because the, the, the grip that alcohol and drugs gets on us is extremely powerful, can be extremely difficult for people. And the older they get, the more difficult it gets. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, Buddhism, my basic answer is that if you read carefully, um, Buddhism, the, the AA traditions, they, they have a thing called the spiritual ex- appendix, which says basically um, a spiritual experience is a change of personality sufficient to bring out about recovery from alcoholism. That's it. Oh, wow. A change of personality is sufficient. And that talks about finding an unsuspected inner resource. So whether or not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a th- traditional theist, you know, but, but there's plenty of room in that 12-step tradition for, for people to find some sort, source outside themselves that can lead to a personal transformation. And that's been my own experience. In fact, my, my, as I said, I started to meditate in 1966. My meditation practice got very serious more than 30 years ago after I stopped using drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. I think the two, Carl Jung has an interesting phrase, spiritus contra spiritum. Spirits versus the spirit. And alcohol and drugs, uh, in my experience, were serious obstacles to my being able to do, to experience deeper insight or deeper, deeper understanding through meditation, through yeah. Buddhist meditation mm-hmm. specifically. So, wow! If people are looking to get uh, started, interested in uh, recovery, is do you have any resources well, are, or, or, or well, I think I mean I, I personally tell people to do it all. You know, do it. Yeah. I mean, try whatever and. and First of all, don't give up. I mean, people will go to one AA meeting and hear the word God and say, I can't do this. I'm not, a, I don't believe, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think try try 12-step programs. There's a movement here, um, actually now worldwide, called Refuge Recovery. Mm-hmm. There is a, a Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I think it's called Heart of Recovery, which has been going on for quite a few years. And there are other experience. There's a lot of literature out there. Uh, people, Martine Batchelor, someone I like, who's written a, a really wonderful book about addictions, um, Kevin Griffin is another one. I ran into him, oddly, at a Buddhist monastery a few weeks ago. Um, there's a lot of different books out there. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different options. I, I, I encourage people to talk, uh, talk to others, find a community or a sangha, if you will, in the Buddhist terms, a community of people who are focused on recovery and can work with you to support them. That's been the key thing in my re- is finding a community of people where we had a community of intent, community mm-hmm. of intention, where we are following the same path 
and had we're supporting each other in doing that. So that's great. Yeah. Thanks. Thank uh, la- last question about recovery. Yeah. I want to ask yeah. before we start winding it mm-hmm. down. Um, uh, we mentioned uh, generational issues. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, my father and my grandfather were both functional addicts, and sure. when my time came to avoid my problems, I, I turned to that as well. Right. Um, but you know, hopefully, I've broken the cycle in my healing, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of people are reflecting on their generational trauma and trying to break the cycle. And uh, I'm curious if you feel the same hope for our culture in mass as I do in seeing how the individual is looking to stop the generational trauma and and heal if that gives us hope for like say even our country because we have this history of genocide and enslavement and all of these things in our past that are fueling the violence and hatred in this country and I, do you think that having so many individuals turning towards healing paths is giving us hope for our collective yes <laughs> Good I, I think it's very I think it's uh, it's an extremely discouraging time one of the other byproducts of this uh, our saturation with social media is that we have um, exposure to much more information than we've ever been exposed to before and depending on how the news cycle breaks and you know you know you think about this this news cycle that we seem to be all caught up in uh the latest discouraging news is being basically set out to each one of us in our little smartphones and you know so it's it can be an extremely demoralizing and discouraging time to be alive so i give tremendous credit to the movements of young people um that are now stepping up in a variety of ways i know you're aware of some of them um Going back to the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, mm-hmm. even be- well before that, of course. I mean, there's been a lineage of these movements. You know, I've, I've certainly I claim to be part of those that lineage. Mm-hmm. And um, engage Buddhism certainly is part of that. Yes. Uh, so, I I don't know what our choice is. We we simply have to keep stepping up, and we have to up our game. If you'll forgive the sports metaphor, <laughs> I'll take it. We have to get more intense. We have to become more intense. And more focused, and you know the young the young people that are coming out of uh, uh, Europe now, particularly where that movement, the climate change movement, has really been generated. You're referring to Extinction Rebellion. Uh, that's part of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's one of the, that's one part of it. But in general, um, we simply, uh, you know, it appears that the critics, uh, the people who have most forcefully raised the specter of climate change and its impacts, are right. We continue to get further and further confirmation. Things that were, were predicted 20 years ago are actually happening. Yeah. As we said already, it's hard to get people's attention you know, until the guy with Ebola fl- gets off a plane in your, <laughs> in your airport yeah. you know, or in your community and is wandering around. and you know, It's hard to get people's attention. But it, we have to command the attention of people in the world, as many as possible. Powerful people, if possible. If not that, then certainly young people who have the flexibility and the energy and the competence, in many cases, to raise these issues forcefully and a willingness to, to sustain that effort. It's got to be a sustained effort because, as I said originally to you, uh, these forces are extreme. The, the forces of inertia of wealth and power are extremely powerful and extremely resistant to anything that challenges 
their sense of self-sufficiency, self-aggrandizement, and so forth. So finding that, that energy and that strength and that courage and finding a community of people that we can uh, work with together it is hugely important. I have modest hopes, but I'm, I'm, I get discouraged just like anyone else. So. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I, I think I said on the, on the, the last podcast, I, I identify as a cynical idealist. Right. right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but you know, I'm not yeah, surprised yeah. when it... And that's why, out. by the way, I do the social media stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. I've been, I don't know how many posts... I, I'm, I'm a Facebook guy because I started when they started, basically. But I put up tens of thousands of posts on Facebook. And I just keep putting, looking for good material from every possible source including Buddhist sources, by the way, putting it up there and hoping that by offering it, you know, I have, I don't know, 25, more, well, more than 2,500 quote-unquote friends now, uh, many of whom really are friends, and I just keep putting this material out and hoping that by making my small contribution to this process, if more of us do that and support each other in doing it, that's part of the solution as well, so... Yeah, that's great. Yeah, your page is, is wonderfully curated. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Cool. So before we wrap it up, I guess uh, as the voice of, of wisdom and, and age mm-hmm. here, uh, do you have anything else you want to share about uh, information or environment or recovery or Buddhism? Anything? Um, wanna, I, wanna, I, think I, I think I in a way I just said it. I think, yeah? I think <laughs> the thing I want, I hope for the most, is that a whole this whole younger generation of people that are coming up um, will use their their hearts and minds, their intelligence and their deepest feelings to respond to the challenges that we're facing worldwide. And knowing that it's, a, it's an extremely difficult task, that it's a hard task, and that there are many forces that resist for very bad reasons, mm-hmm. for ignorant, for reasons of greed or hatred, greed, hatred, ill will, and, um, uh, and ignorance. But it, that's not new. What's new is that we are facing an emergency and that we need, we have to respond more powerfully, more forcefully, more successfully now. So, I agree. I agree. Good luck to us all. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So um, I'd like to just end with a few questions that I like sure. to ask everybody. Sure, um, I'm yeah. always surprised by the answers I get. Uh, uh, so, sure. okay. so the, the name of the show is A Flare for the Curious. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, uh, what is something that you're curious to learn more about? Hmm. Well, I'm pretty self-satisfied. Yeah, <laughs> I got a lot of knowledge and information. Well, I just keep I, I just keep digging. You know, I, yeah. I mean, I, I find um, uh, personally because I have a bias to biology, uh-huh. I love finding out more about the natural world and about the species in it. And that's why it breaks my heart when I see what's happening in the Amazon, where we're destroying species, whole species, without even knowing that we're doing it. Yeah. But but every time I learn something new, uh, I, I'm just fascinated to think there's a new there's a species, a small species of marsupial in Australia, where it turns out that the males die right after mating. Wow! And it's a new bit of biology that I'd never seen before, and I, yeah. I think that I've been kind of pondering that. I think, well. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> a little frightening for those of us that are procreating males yeah. <laughs> or would like to be. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of thing. But, you know, a friend, I remember, and never mind. That's, that's yeah. not to say. Biodiversity that. is fascinating. Yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I, so I guess I don't ask this question to everybody, but because you're such a, mm-hmm. uh, an animal lover, yeah. uh, what's your favorite animal? If, oh. you, if you had to pick up, maybe two or three even. Like. Oh, that would be extremely hard. <laughs> Too hard? Oh, fair enough. Extremely hard fair enough. Say, yeah. Dogs or cats? Well, I, I have two cats. I have a blind cat that I keep at home. 
uh, named Ray Ray. He was named for Ray Charles, I think, originally. Wow. And he, we've had him for... He, he was blind since three months old, and I've had him... Wow. We've had him now for going on nine years. His, in fact, the end of this month will be his ninth anniversary, we believe, his birthday, September 28th. And he's been struggling with cancer for 15 months, but he's in recovery, apparently. So, you know, we love him. And yeah. the other cat is named Monk, and he's from... He was founded at the Buddhist Mo- Baigiri Monastery in Northern California. Oh, yeah. I've and, been up there. Yeah, he's been... It, we, he was... Uh, I adopted him up there because one of the monks had told me that the foxes were after him. Oh. I said, he's got to go with me. So yeah. we've had him ever since. So That's great. Yeah, he's, he's going on 10 or 11 now. So Nice. Yeah, yeah. Cats it is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, for me. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I love dogs too, though. So. Nice, nice. Uh, okay, so Curious has two definitions. Uh, the other one is a little bit strange or odd or mm-hmm. out of the ordinary. So have you had a curious experience or an unexplainable experience that uh, is strange or maybe... Mm-hmm. Unexplainable. That's interesting. Well, I've had I've had experiences that are surprising in my life. I mean, one that surprises people very often is that I once performed on the Miss, as a dancer on the Miss America stage in Atlantic City. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're going to have to explain. <laughs> my this a my bit. wife was going down there as a, for a dance conference, and they they had a uh, they were doing a dance performance, and uh-huh. they had a male dancer that that got sick and couldn't perform, and so they recruited me. So I had to go out on the stage. And do a grand jeté out onto the stage, go down on my hands and knees, and have a dancer come flying out of the wings and land on my back. Wow! So it was not a part that you could write out of the <laughs> out of the equation, out of the performance. And so I did that. Is there any footage of this? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah. All right. And last question I want to ask is: uh, Can you name a time when you experienced something profoundly beautiful? Profoundly beautiful. Hmm. It's a good. Or point. profound beauty. Mm-hmm. Well, the things that come to mind uh, are more when I the things you actually are aware of this place. Uh, I, I mentioned it earlier in our talk today. Uh, I went out to Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge, which is in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It's it's actually where the largest oasis in the Mojave Desert is. And when I first went out there, you drive for miles and miles through pretty desolate, high, hot desert. And you get there and you suddenly you walk along a boardwalk or along a pathway and you come to these beautiful springs, crystal blue springs with little pupfish, uh, other species of fish, uh, sometimes frogs or other animals in there. And it's just miraculous. It's miraculous to be in the middle of the desert. And in a way, it sort of makes me, uh, it's it, it, it brings me back to our situation globally mm-hmm. that there is hope that these little fish have survived in the middle of that desert uh, for millions. I mean, these fish probably were swimming around the feet of mammoths. There were mammoths have been found out there back in the days when there were lakes there. These little fish probably swam around the feet of mammoths who were wading in that water. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's what comes to mind most immediately is just that beauty and they, by the way they're beautiful little blue fish they're only about an inch or two long but they're just beautiful and i, I love that and that that's probably the thing that that strikes me i have so many r- recollections of experiences in nature like that but that's one that comes to mind right at the moment so that's great yeah thank you yeah sure all right yeah this has been fantastic right, thank, thank you, you so much yeah, I, I was you. wondering if i could make the make a request to you sure uh before uh we formally end if you could close us out with the 
English version of the Buddhist chant that you offered oh, I'd be happy to. at our prayer service. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I've listened to hundreds of Dharma talks, and I've heard this chant uh, recited in Pali many times, mm-hmm. but you're the only person I've ever heard recited in English, and I mm-hmm. think... It's it's valuable for people to hear that. So I'd be, I would, happy to I'd be honored if you sure, could thank you close for us that way. Me, yeah. What I can do is I can uh, I'll start with the with the the way that uh, a Buddhist Dhamma talk often begins, which is to say, <clears throat> Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangang Namasami And that means basically homage to the Buddha, blessed Buddha. And it ends with, I bow to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So what, what you ask for is the um, Metta Karaniya Sutta, which is in Pali, and the trans, it's the loving, often translated as the loving kindness sutta, and I'll try my best to get it here. So, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great and the mighty, medium, short and small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any form. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred or ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the divine abiding, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much, Tom. Sure. This thank you very much, Anthony. Yeah. All right. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening all the way through to the end of this conversation. I really enjoyed having it, and I just want to say thank you to Tom so much for taking the time 
Uh, I also want to say thank you to University of the West for uh, lending us the space to record that conversation and, you know, for introducing me to so many wonderful professors and uh, scholars uh, like Tom Moritz. It's really a, a blessing to, to have that U.S. community be a part of, of my life these days. Um, send me your feedback. I'd love to hear what did you think about our episode? Uh, is there something you are curious to learn more about? Email me at aflareforthecurious at gmail.com uh, and did, let me know uh, what you thought. Would you like to learn more about Buddhism? More about addiction and recovery? Uh, are you uh, an environmental activist? What's going on these days? You got a protest you want to promote? <laughs> Let's make some magic happen because uh, this world is falling apart and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us to save it. And Tom's information and scholarship and outlook and support, I think, really lend itself to uh, making strides in um, progressive politics these days. All right, so let's see what else is on the agenda. Um, I'll give you a little preview of our next episode. We're going to take a little bit of a different turn. So we talked about addiction and recovery, and for some, our next episode might be a little bit of a flipping of the script. The next episode is featuring my friend Jessica Gonzalez, also known as The Mommy Jane. Jessica is a cannabis educator, influencer, and someone who is active in... uh, the work of destigmatizing cannabis use for all of us, for parents. Um, you know, times are changing and uh, things are different these days, and it's important to have uh, advocates like her out in the world and people who are doing it in a fun way. So, you know, she's got uh, a lot of followers on Instagram, and she's made the cover of the High Times webpage. She's uh, she's pretty incredible, and I think you're going to really enjoy that conversation. Uh, head over to aflareforthecurious.com and you can find uh, more episodes and links to uh, some of the stuff we talked about in this episode. Um, and as a reminder, I am uh, a college student who is putting this podcast out with my own time, money, and effort. So if you are finding some value in what you listen to here today and would like to make a, a financial contribution, I invite you to do so. You can uh, click the donate support link below or um, the tab on our website and make uh, uh, a donation through Cash App, Venmo, um, all the PayPal, all the easy ways to do it are available to you. Okay, friends, again, thank you so much for the support and encouragement. You all have been so wonderful uh, in in sharing yourselves with me, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you again soon. Remember to stay curious. Never stop asking those great questions. And keep your hearts open. Have a great one, everybody. Peace.